everyone once again to the director's club podcast episode 92 i am jim laskowski and today i am joined by another charismatic guest and he's a filmmaker as well he goes by the name of ben medina hi hi uh, ben hey jim uh how are you i'm I'm, I'm i'm overly ecstatic about this episode yeah though this is going to be uh exciting um, it's exciting for me to, once again, this is the second episode in a row where I am not using Skype, and that makes me very happy to be live in-house with a guest. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming to the house. Yeah. Uh, despite the fact that it's in flux, which actually leads me to um, a question that I have for you. As I understand, uh, Patrick is no longer, he's still sort of floating around the shape of the podcast, but he's no yes. longer exact. It's no longer, you're no longer, um, you know, Siamese twins, but... So if you're navigating most of the podcast yourself and making decisions about the shape of the podcast yourself, is there, are there any specific things that you like that you'd like to do? Like what, what, is, <laughs> what, what would you say the flavor of like Jim's Directors Club podcast as opposed to the Jim and Patrick podcast? Well, there's going to be more puns. Um, no, I, don't, um, I don't know if there's – really it was everything I wanted it to be when Patrick was around. Yeah. Like I didn't really have any – uh, issues with its format or how it was conceived. I mean, neither did Patrick, really. I think it's just a matter of, like, being exhausted and needing time off, and I understand that, and I don't know if it's going to be permanent or not. But at yeah. the same time, um, I know for a fact, as difficult as it is to say, but I'm going to be open and candid, I can't necessarily do a filmmaker like Fassbinder as much as yeah. I want to because it's a very difficult director for me to process um, and <laughs> delve into for like even just two or three weeks. Um, like to, to, to binge watch a bunch of Fassbinder movies was really difficult for me to where I was like, I don't know, if, like I really want to change the schedule around to where we don't have to do Buñuel and a lot of directors that I know we should be doing. But at the same time, it's challenging, and yeah. it makes me like feel, I don't know, not necessarily inferior to a lot of other podcasters or movie scholars or something, but it was just like, I, I need to have a little bit more fun doing this yeah, <laughs> and make it more freeform and not necessarily structured. Yeah. But I think that's interesting because it's like when you have a podcast where the premise is that you're reviewing filmmakers, then there's pressure where it's like, are, do, are, do we suck if we don't talk about like... Godard. Yeah. You know, do we suck if we don't talk about like Fassbinder? Fassbinder. Yeah. You know, it's um and and then it's and then it and then it's like but also we love Sam Raimi. You know? Of course. Yeah, it's exactly and Joe it. Dante. It's about finding that balance. Yeah. But also not, you know, being so overwhelmed by that. You yeah. Because <laughs> and I think it was just like him and I were going through a funk at that exact time. Yeah. So I don't imagine a Fassbinder I, funk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly how I put it. That could change in a year or two. I might just like say, you know what? 
we're doing this. We got a lot of fans and we got a lot of interested film people out there who want to hear our thoughts on a director like that. But, um, you know, I'm, 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 I would say that the choices I have coming up, I don't want to say they're more mainstream, but um, they're, they're, fam- they're more familiar yeah. people in general. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm curious because I come to this as someone who is undeniably a fan of the podcast and I, I am a friend of Colin's and I started listening to it through Colin but um, you know you guys turned me on to like like Claire Denis who I think is absolutely astounding Yeah, and um, I've, t- I've talked to you about this before I think I came up to you at a, at a, at a thing at Colin's and it was like Claire Denis Wong Kar Wai Olivier Seas um, all of these people tremendously uh, life changing for me I think um, yeah, that's ex- that's one of the first questions I had for you. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, because like you know, it's interesting too. Just you know, going off of the f- the very last episode, I talked with Colin and Eric mm-hmm. about nostalgia, nineteen eighty five, yeah. and you know, we're we're you know thirty somethings and up, and here I am sitting with a very young man who is you know roughly twenty years younger than me, and yet knows light years more about cinema than I did at your age, which is incredible to to see, and I almost want to like. You know, uh, give Colin a lot of props for setting you on the right path too, because I know he taught you a lot. Um, but also, you just you know educated yourself. Yeah, and, I did, and you certainly you know discovered a lot of directors that I think I would have been intimidated by <laughs> at your yeah. age. So that's I mean, really commendable. Yeah, I, I think there's um, I think there's a a odd calibration of tastes which I possess that there's no, I, and I think that I don't know if this is. I know that there's a cultural narrative of like Generation X versus Millennials, which I think is ultimately fairly silly. While we're young, while we're exactly, <laughs> so we'll talk about that later. But um, I think that it's it's uh, you know, the th- I, I I I I don't know like like w- what comfort food is, and this might be being 18 and enraged at the world constantly. But it's like I think that I don't I didn't I don't necessarily have. Um, a nostalgia thing. I haven't grown that yet. Yeah. You know, you don't. And in fact, I think that I uh, distrust nostalgia almost. Um, I think Patrick, that's where you would agree with Patrick yeah. for sure. Yeah. And I'm more likely than not to assume, like, for example, it's hard for me to imagine an SNL that's relevant or funny. <laughs> You know, it's in my and it's and or there's were probably similar cultural fixtures at the time that were irrelevant and unfunny that everyone seemed to love, and I don't think that necessarily changes. Um, and so there's a and and, and also because uh, quote unquote nostalgia, contempor- contemporarily speaking, seems to be mostly tied to like five years in the eighties that I didn't necessarily yeah. experience. Yeah, that seems you know. that seems accurate. Or even in the early nineties, I think when grunge sort of hit there seemed to be like this resurgence of a cultural um zeitgeist if you will (laughs) of like independent film like blew up yeah with tarantino and you know a couple years earlier with nirvana like there's just this wave of like you have to be in the know with this with this moment in time um whereas now it's just interesting like i I, that's kind of why I wanted to get your perspective too. Is the the new wave of independent cinema has really changed, and it's not what it was in the you know mid '90s or whatever. It's just it's it's different to me because now I even think um, since you know we you know I, we're going to mention a few titles other than the Alex Ross Perry, who is yeah. our director of the episode. By the way, I'm yep. sure people know that at this point, but. <clears throat> 
Uh, Joel Petrikas. Yeah. You know, we interviewed him, and it was great. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, Patrick did, and we did a bonus episode. Patrick interviewed him, and I interviewed um, Riley Stearns, who did Faults, which mm-hmm. I loved. Um, so it's it's just interesting knowing the way that they got their movies out was through VOD and this new form of digital distribution. Vimeo is a huge way to get yeah. your name out there. So, I mean, there's just there's so many ways, but to get your um uh your your art yeah. <laughs> seen but at the same time it feels like overwhelming to all yeah. to process all this content there's this book i read once called the paradox of choice and when you are confronted with so many choices it, yeah it your brain can't process that and we're not meant to process this much information all at once that yeah. like you know, back in my time, you had to really make an effort to go to that video store and say, this is the video I'm picking up and choosing as opposed to like hitting a button on your computer and downloading it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, I think that that's undeniably true. And I think that also you absolutely have to, I think that culturally there are some things that are just, um, there's the, there's the, there's the, the there's a, a segment in While We're Young where they, where, where um, Ben Stiller is like they like Citizen Kane and the Goonies. It's democracy of taste. I don't I don't believe <laughs> in a democracy of taste necessarily. I think that things are more available now, but that doesn't mean that they're all like equally good. I think that the Goonies is a bad movie. I think it's a bad movie, and I don't like it at all. I think it's okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I think that they, yeah. There's my like vicious like on you know strange like anger and contempt towards I wonder if I like just never saw it as a kid if you know my I wouldn't think I would think it's a bad movie if I saw it at this age for the first time yeah that's very possible you know and I'm (laughs) I'm I'm weird because I didn't have there's there's, it it sometimes feels like there's a collective sort of font of cultural memory among people my age like watching Spongebob or watching you know whatever playing video games um, that they can all sort of draw on that I never had and never really had an interest in um, and I, I think that that you know, it's it's weird because you don't know if you're part of a larger demographic or if you're just uh, yourself and weird. But also that degree of solipsism is unbecoming and uninteresting. Uh, in a but Alex Ross Perry seems to capture that very well. The solipsistic nature of us in, of humanity, like just I think we'll we'll definitely tackle that yeah. later on. But just like he's really good at capturing the loneliness of narcissism, and I think that's a, a topic that um, Noah Baumbach himself really captures really well and that's kind of why where while we're young almost felt like a mainstream kind of movie but at the same time tackling themes i was like i like it but i don't love it and i think it's unfocused a little bit because it goes off into this tangent about documentary filmmaking yeah ethics. And it's like what is that i don't know <laughs> i mean I, th- I, th- I think he uses it to i mean i don't know if you want to talk about it now or later or like what do you want to do well i think you know overall i mean you mentioned three directors i just kind of wanted to, at, at the start here to get a little bit of background on you and, you know, just sort of ask how you became a film devotee and, uh, you know, what sparked your interest in becoming a filmmaker as opposed to just sitting back and watching a bunch of movies. Like, what is the film or director or, you know, just a series of films? Was it a succession of films that got you hooked and interested in the art form? Well, I think undeniably it was that I I grew up in a household where there's no... where... doing I'm, I'm an old child but um like writing or performing or creating stuff for fun as that that as the thing that you do in your free time because i'm un, absolutely not a sports kid that was always just like the thing you do mm-hmm. you know um and i think I, I think that it's it's cut 
in, it, there are definitely chunks. There are points where I could have been like, um, maybe I could do something else because, you know, I, I've always, you know, written and directed stuff and it was really organic to start filming it with a camera. Um, and, um, my dad always, you know, and then there's always been like a currency of watching movies in the house. Good. Watching like old movies and weird movies, and I saw Apocalypse Now really young, and I saw Ben Hur really young, and I saw all this stuff really young, and so that was always just part of the the firmament, you know. That's and so I think that that's why my taste is calibrated in a weird way, and I don't think it's it's that I have good taste. I think that's just calibrated in a weird way. That like my comfort food is 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 weird. I have a weird comfort food. Um, and that, uh, like Gilbert and Sullivan is a comfort food. That's weird. That's a weird thing. Right. You know? Um, but I think that, so that, there was, there was that. And then it was just, you know, uh, going to film camps and, and so far it's been a really organic sort of movement. I never really, I think I'm weird because I never really had a a, a phase where I was like, I could be a chef or I could be a journalist. (laughs) It's always just been the filmmaking and it's always been very clear to me that I have a very specific skill set. And I think that I couldn't imagine um, watching movies without making them. I think that they're a circular, relentless discourse. Hmm. Um, And I think that you respond to the movies you watch by making movies. And it's always just been like the thing that I do. You know, um, I don't have another skill set. I, uh, you know, it's like always just been really organic, you know, and I don't, and it's, yeah, is that? Yeah, that's pretty incredible to hear. I mean, are you going to school for film? I'm going, yeah, I'm, um, this summer is crazy because we got the kitchen redone and we got a new puppy and (laughs) everyone's out of the house all the time. And at the end of the summer, I'm going to, um, like Wesleyan, Wesleyan University for, uh, they have a for uh, you know for film, and I also like it because it's a goddamn you know university. I'm um, I like things. I'm a I'm good at the books. Yeah, you know, um, and I think that film school is a silly thing uh, because I think that movies are about things. Movies are not about movies about movies. Um, and so going to a place you have to experience life too. To, absolutely, yeah. experience life, and also read a goddamn book. Um, yeah. you know, and I think that that's absolutely vital. Um, can I continue with another tangent or do you want to? Oh, sure. No, okay. Go ahead. Like, for example, like on the topic of film school right now, um, uh, my, uh, my, my brother, Richard, my younger brother, Richard, who's 16, is at a, uh, at a program at an art school uh, where it's like simulating what it's like to be in an art school. I don't, I just don't want to say the art school's name, but an art school. And he's, um, he's, he, he's finding out that it's a silly thing because mm-hmm. it's a, a sort of vacuum sealed environment. And so what you're, the things that you're making are not you figuring out how art or whatever works, but instead you're creating it within the context of the sort of vacuum-sealed art school environment. Um, and that's why I'm going to Wesleyan because they have a film center and you can get a film degree and so forth, but they also have, like... Um, I didn't know I was pitching for Wesleyan. They, but they also have... You can, you can, you can take classes, but it's, it's, a, it's a university. You can take classes sure. in multiple things. And I think that's, that's really important. exciting. Yeah. yeah, that's really important to get uh, exposure to all sorts of different things, too, and not just one... And plus, like, I mean, I understand the educational process and, you know, getting your film history classes in the same way you got to get your art history classes. But for someone to necessarily inform and dictate exactly how to make a movie, um, there's fundamentals and there are basics, there are blueprints, there are things that you should know how to do, like what lenses work and whatnot. But it's it's also up to the artist to figure that stuff out on their own too yeah. and a lot of our the great ones 
they have dabbled in film school a little bit. But a lot of it they get from listening to fucking film commentaries and watching movies. And I think that two things. Number one, I am both uh, solipsistic but also self-aware enough to realize that I am an outlier, that the world does not revolve around me, and that there's this weird thing that I do. And I think that sometimes the, the, the degree of knowledge I have, I don't know, you know, at a certain point it becomes this thing that's taking place only for itself. It's, all, it's always been this self-fulfilling thing that happens mm-hmm. only for itself, but it's like, um, you know, like a filmmaker who's really exciting to me right now is this, uh, this Japanese filmmaker called Kiyoshi Kurahara, who like, no one knows about, but I adore. It's like, does that... What did he do? He did uh, The Warped Ones. He's like a contemporary of Seijun Suzuki. Oh, okay. And if you want okay. to do what we watched this week, I can talk about it more because I adore him. But anyway, it's like, <laughs> is that you know knowledge worthwhile? And I think that but the benefit to me is that I don't accrue this knowledge with the intention that it's going to be like a magical balm. I accrue it for the joy of having that knowledge. You know, the joy is vested in the thing. And I think that... Um, you know, you that's that's like one of the things that I think about a lot. That the the ideal is that that's silly. Let's ignore that tangent. Um, <laughs> well, that's fine. But, I mean, that's also interesting. It's almost like an extension of Patrick's inquiry to that last time him and I spoke. Is like, why am I, you know, investing all this time and energy into watching all of these movies from every genre, from yeah. every walk of life? What is the purpose? Like it's, and you just say joy. Yeah, for the joy. Yeah. The, 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 the worth is rooted in the thing. Um, and that to me is not – and, and, uh, and I think it's a higher degree. It's a separate degree of happiness and fulfillment than if you just like watch you know, cartoons over and over again. <laughs> it's a separate thing. Um, another, another unlikable thing about me is that I don't enjoy cartoons. Uh, like, I mean, I, uh, I'm front-loading the, the obnoxious aspects of this 18-year-old asshole. Um, I, like, I, I appreciate Pixar, and it's like, this is delightful, but I also do not get, like, a thrill out of it. To me, it's about, you know, it's, I, I really get a lot out of, um, you know, live-action, way more so than, um, than anything animated. I would agree with that, but every now and then, Pixar, t- you know, puts out a gem, and I'm just kind of blown away by the fact that they can really tap into my emotions as yeah. well as like the visual components but, but it also fe- it feels like an apple product in that it's something that's been designed <laughs> to hit you in your emotions like yeah, I, I like yeah. i like messy things and i like messy animation if animation is messy then yeah. i enjoy it not just you know scrawls but if they're writing it doesn't feel like like um like I think that a lot of cultural things that are adored are made by people who graduate schools like Wesleyan or whatever, and then they're like vacuumed up and put in a special room. These like right. special privileged, you know, brain babies like in Minority Report who are then have to <laughs> chug out sitcom scripts that are just impe- impeccable with all the edges sort of cut off. Yeah. You know, where it's like perfect comedy machine, beautiful, 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 and that doesn't turn me on at all. It's weird because I'm conflicted about me and Earl and the Dying Girl because I was feeling that sort of awareness of, is this pre-designed in a way that's manipulative? I think so, yes. <laughs> like, and then other people you know, really have an intense response to that movie. And I understand also the criticism of like, well, it's pretty much the fault in our stars, only you know, more indie-ish. Yeah. And I, I understand that criticism too. But then like halfway into that movie... Like, I found myself giving in, like, going, okay, just because I have a familial, you know, association with, you know, my dad having cancer and this girl has cancer, it's almost like the critical part of my brain shuts down because what this character is going through. 
And it's not all about like, oh, this is so twee hipster, you know, Wes Anderson kind of ripoff yeah. stuff. Because I was feeling that way for a little while in, the, in that movie. But I was also like in my head going, I think this is pre-designed. I don't know if yeah. I think it's manipulative. I don't know if I really love this movie or if it's just, you know, puppet strings yeah. the whole time. Yeah. And I think that I have, um, I'm not, I respond oddly to um, movies. I think that I, I have, I don't. It's not that I, I the, that I don't empathize with the characters. It's just that there are strange things that I empathize with, and I've actually my um my, my quest recently has been to watch the things the movies that are scariest to me are the movies from Fassbinder and Lars von Trier sure. and John Cassavetes because they're all um, emotional live wire movies. Yeah, they're so raw. They're so raw, and I think that you know th- there are different, vastly different people, but they're united by that rawness and by the focus on people and by addressing people in a way that is it's they're not movies about quote-unquote people in the same way that for example while we're young is a movie about people they're their own specific breed um that is really really raw but also really really compelling and um the short film that i'm working on next that is uh, is my attempt to do that so it's like you force yourself to do the things that are scary what's scary oh people talking People talking is scary in a confrontational manner. In a con- exactly in a confrontational manner, yeah. not about like art. That's always scary. That's always scary. <laughs> and I'm going to do it, you know. And you do it mostly in like like on a on a stage set. That's terrifying. Yeah. You know, and you're doing it with adults. That's terrifying. And you're shooting it yourself. That's terrifying. I feel like uh, Natasha says in a, in a number of ways the failings of that. Where is it okay if I talk about this? Oh yeah, the, of the, fa- the failings yeah. of Natasha says were that it was, it was, in a way that's was, your movie, by the way. That's yeah. your short film. The the which you scored. Thank you. Which I yes. am. <laughs> yeah. Which which you know, I'm in the process of submitting to places, and which I which I, I like very much, and I think it's the best thing that I've done so far. But it's also sort of, you know squirms around the challenge of writing a script by framing it as a series of conversations. And I also think that there's such a concentrated aesthetic attack in that we're going to have these long tracking camera shots and we're going to shoot on Super 8 and we're going to have all these cool images and colors and we're going to have the Jim's music, which is really dense, that in a way it sort of elides the challenge of actual difficult mm-hmm. filmmaking and that circles back to the film school thing i think that um you know through the past four years you know i have increasingly um you know written scripts and you know been making short films and failing at them which i think is really really healthy i mean i, I oh sure you know um fi- you know if you make something that is a failed narrative then that forces you to think and then you submit it to festivals and it doesn't get in that's a really powerful lesson because then it's like okay why is this a failed narrative what does a narrative require how can you learn from those mistakes how can you learn from it what makes a narrative work and then what are you um, invested in and I think that figuring out how to articulate what is exciting to you about cinema and about art is incredibly uh, important, especially because I think that culturally we don't necessarily respond to nuanced opinions about anything. Um, <laughs> that's true. That's very true. It's black and white. Yeah. You know, that's how it is, unfortunately, especially in, in our internet culture. It's just like you either love something or you hate something. Yeah. You walk out of a movie, you tweet about it, like, I loved it or I hated it. You know, yeah. that's sad. I hope it's okay with you this, like, rocket-fueled monologuing because in my head I'm thinking, Ben, you're talking too fast and then there's another part of me that is like, don't stop, speed up. <laughs> so is it... I think you're at the right speed. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, it's all subjective. Like, one person could think, my God, he's talking way too fast. I can't keep up. And one person can be like... Uh. My, my lips are basically on the microphone and I'm like, you know... Yeah. Very close to shouting. 
Is that okay? Yeah, I think so. Awesome. I think volume-wise, you're fine. So don't worry. <laughs> no, I think, like, I mean, I, I was just always wanting to sit down and have this conversation with you because of the age difference, but also just, like, where uh, where are you at to... Because when I was your age, I wanted to make movies. And a lot of that had to do with seeing something like Evil Dead 2. Now, would see, seeing something like It Follows spark that same yeah. like motivation, not necessarily make like a horror movie, but make movies. Is there like just... Like I even just talked in the last episode, like something seeing something like Back to the Future was transcendent because you're seeing it in a movie theater and having like an experience that maybe is akin to how people feel in church. Like, yeah, you're have, you're feeling all yeah. the same things with all these people. You're laughing, you're cheering, you're crying, or whatever. All these things yeah. at the same time. Well, I think for me, it's uh, they're kind of like um, parallel lines, and I uh, I I I've decided I was thinking I was thinking earlier because this was this is cool doing this podcast at school and study. But I was thinking earlier, like how, what is the, 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 what, what flavor of Ben should be presented? Because there's a flavor <laughs> of Ben that's, you know, I could be like, you know, I decided to be, um, maybe slightly off putting, but also more honest in that, like, I've never, I realized earlier that there have always, that the, the, the film practice has always been its own separate parallel track. And that I think that there are different pleasures that you receive from movies and that only rarely are they united in something like Alex Ross Perry. I think that, uh, like the back to the future movies and some, and when I first saw the, the Star Trek remake, we were oddly enough, wow. you know, yeah, that really ignites a flame where it's like, Wow. The movies, right? But that's a very sort. Of, but then it's like, where, what is that joy? That joy is again. It's a nostalgic joy. It's this idea of film going from the seventies and eighties and being a, a gorgeous little, you know, mop-headed Spielberg child, and seeing <laughs> the movies, right? You know, um, and I think that I still absolutely feel that not as much, you know. If ever, I don't know. Maybe I'm like a weird, like Damien child, but I've never. But there are specific things I undeniably received receive and continue to receive that charge from where it's like the movies how about mad max fury road yeah that that okay. I, I, undeniably um but i and then there so there's that pleasure and then i think that there are other pleasures that you get you know i think that there there are pleasures where it's like you're watching it as a filmmaker for example and like this is something that i could do this mm-hmm. is something that's really engaging you know i think that there there are different ways that you consume different flavors of consumption and i don't think that one is necessarily the best but i do know that i do not watch like Mad Max Fury Road and immediately think how can i do Mad Max Fury Road <laughs> Because, but there are people who do that. You know? I'm sure. No, I'm sure people walk out of that movie feeling inspired to think, oh, man, I want to get to that level. Yeah. But, you know, something lo-fi, something indie, um, and something that felt really visceral and immediate, like Evil Dead 2, and the way the camera was just so, yeah. uh, you know, alive. Yeah, Evil Dead 2, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a very much a key movie for you, yeah. right? Oh, clearly, yeah. yeah. And, 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 I mean, has there yeah. been something recent like that? Because, like, to me... When I walked out, of, like a lot of people feel differently, but when I walked out of It Follows, I, I thought if I was 18 years old and I saw this movie, it would make me want to make movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I like I'm all, I'm already in, in my head. In my head, I'm already like making movies. True, you know? true. Like that's so. There's no like. I don't usually think, "Wow, I want to make movies," because I'm all because there's. It's already I, there. I, yeah, yeah there's, the seed there, has already been planted. Yeah, the seed and it's has growing. already been planted, and and uh, you know, there's always. There's always something like uh, cooking or something that I'm working on, um, so it's not like I would like to make movies. But there are definitely things that. Oh, here, Alex Ross Perry. Can I can I talk about him? Yeah, let's go for uh, it. Yeah. So, 
Um, earlier, I think I think earlier this year, um, I was working on a, a Shore Leave, the Weird Sailor movie. Oh, okay, you. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really bummed out about it because I uh, I was you know also getting into um, experimental film, and I felt very confused about like what was exciting or interesting to me about movies. Why why movies? You know, this is is this like a compulsion? You know, Ooh, but you're having like an existential moment. Yeah, there, but like a, a compulsion that's not necessarily beneficial. Like, it's is there anything you know? Like, why? What is making this cook? What is exciting or interesting to me about this? Because I felt really torn. Because you should read the Patton Oswalt book that yeah. just came out recently, Silver Screen Fiend, because like he addresses that. Yeah. in the book because because uh, I think there's a like a film teacher who I, I'm not in contact anymore because of this, but he was like talking about, um, be, be, because he framed it as a decision between experimental cinema and narrative cinema to me. And I was like, and he was just like pointing it out. And, but I took it as the leaping off point for like this crisis that there are things that are exciting to me about experimental cinema that I can't do. And, you know, and it's like, and then it's also like, you're going to college soon. And, oh my God, what is my life? Who am I? Um, <laughs> and then I started reading interviews with Alex Ross Perry and hearing about Alex Ross Perry and also hearing about this filmmaker called, I'm going to mispronounce his name, like Albert Sarah, Albert Sarah. I don't know. He's, I don't know him. he's Catalonian or something. Hmm. Um, and his most recent movie was called uh, Story of My Death, which is about um, uh, this weird, long-take digital movie about Casanova and Dracula having <laughs> this, like, duel. Um, oh, my. So with him and then uh, another, an Argentinian f- filmmaker who's delightful called Matthias Pinheiro. Heard the name. Princess of France and Viola. And I was reading these interviews with these three guys who are really, like... A couple, only a couple years older than I was, and they were making feature films right now, and they were talking about them and finding something exciting in the narrative feature film format that I had not previously seen, and that really reinvigorated me and sort of pointed me on the path of this is what's exciting, um, and this is what's interesting. And I think that um, narrative cinema is a phenomenal, incredible form. I think that it's um, – and it doesn't get enough in love and respect, and it's not seen enough as sort of its own self-enclosed thing. Because I think that – can I continue this hand? Oh, yeah. Do you want to cut in? Okay. I think that um, – because what what happened is that uh, I was you know taking a lot of literature classes at a at a college and I um and here's Alex Ross Perry, you know this shocking thing where he's talking about working on a screenplay and then he's like you know what I was thinking about like Philip Roth who yep. the hell does that who the fuck you know you're not you're not supposed to up until then you know I'd been prey to like this the, you know there are these very hawkish mawkish girls about how a screenplay works and what a screenplay is but the fact that he was like yes Philip Roth who's this really dense incredible novelist where yes there is narrative but there are all these other things going on much like Pinchon much like Pinchon absolutely yeah. you know uh, that blew my head open because I think that um, you know that and this is I think that this is not universal. This is purely for me that the things that are exciting to me about I I, I feel I really really like um, novels. I like prose. I like literature. I like history. Um, and I like and I think that the novel is a fascinating format, specifically the 20th century modernist novel, because of the degree to which it can tie all of these things together. So that you have this mm-hmm. incredible thing moving towards you, where there's a narrative that you're invested in, there are characters you're invested in, but there are also stylistic, exciting things that you're invested in. There are there's a voice that you're invested in. There's incredible prose. You're reading novel for the prose and the narrative and the characters. There are all of these elements hurtling at you. Yeah, and that's the thing. I the thing I like about it is that you create a movie in your mind while right. you're reading. 
thing. Absolutely. It's a unique experience. And then I realized that narrative cinema is the same way. That's, to me, what is exciting about cinema and why it's a pleasure separate from most television, admittedly, most television where it's like we are dispensing information. You know? Yeah. Like South Park is almost the ideal of that where the joke is that everything visual is just shit. And then it's just (laughs) like the characters. That's That's the central joke of South Park. But I think that cinema... Um, and then I, I made this connection between this incredible format, you know, and then and then I found that the same things that were exciting to me about novels were the same things that were exciting to me. Not, when I say novels, I don't mean all novels. I mean, let's be, let, I'm talking about a very, <laughs> admittedly, a comparatively select group of neurotic white dudes in like the <laughs> mid 20th century. Admittedly, and that's like, and um, and I think that that is, but it's like at least at least I'm aware that like my n- happy place. Not my happy place, but it's like, I mean, I do have a comparative, like, compar- I have a like very a comfort zone? broad democracy of taste. But yeah, like the comfort zone, you know, the, 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 the space from which you compare other things to is admittedly that. Like, I, when, I was, um, when I was 15, I read, like, Lolita and Infinite <laughs> Jest, and that sounds really obnoxious to say, I but it's also I don't tell you what honest. I was doing when I was 15. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, but the, those things, and, you know, reading those things showed me what prose was quality prose right and i think that what's exciting to me about cinema and what so that so reading those interviews alex ross perry these three filmmakers who are taking narrative and using it as this gorgeous aesthetic thing showed me what's exciting so exciting about narrative cinema any narrative cinema you know there's this charge of narrative but all these other things happening around it that's very true you sound like me when i when i was that's how i feel about music um like i just found this charge um, around your age from, you know, I mean, obviously alternative music was the thing at the time, but I was going back and listening to, you know, a lot of stuff like ELO and, um, you know, Todd Rundgren of all people, like just these, these sort of uh, Harry Nilsson in particular and discovering like all the influence that this songwriter has on all the music that would follow it. And I just sort of realized like, this is the world that I want to be a part of, too. Yeah. Like, I just want to feel like a song is telling a story yeah. in the same way that a film is telling a story or a good book is telling a story. I'll, I'll never forget the time when I picked up um, A Simple Plan just because Stephen King's quote was on it saying, this is the best book I've read all year. Yeah. And I picked it up, and I read it all in one night, and, like, everything in my head was just clicking with this book. And I yeah. go, I don't know what it is with this author. Because, like, even years later when he put out The Ruins, the same thing happened. Yeah. So I want this guy to keep writing books, Absolutely. but he doesn't write no, that and, many books. And further, that's why I have, like, this distrust of film school. You know, because it yeah. seems like because it seems like there would be such a, a purging. I think because, like, the, we go to movies for personalities. You don't write, read a, a book to see, for it to be like everyone else's book. You right, read it right, because right. it's a distinctive voice. And I think that distinctive voices aren't necessarily formed in a classroom. Well, there's also an elitism that comes with that, too. And it's sad because I think even... I don't know if this is... Elitism that comes with what? Well, I think with, with, going, with, with film school in particular, I remember Colin and Eric, at the time, people were saying, don't, you don't want to do anything like, like Spielberg. Spielberg is out. Like, it's just, they were so focused on independent cinema yeah. that if you tried to emulate any type of Spielberg, no, yeah. out of the question. Yeah. But there are people who are still inspired by Spielberg, you know? If yeah. you want to, even if you won't go back and watch Duel, and if you yeah. can be inspired by Duel of all yeah. things. So, and, I mean. And, and I should say that I, I am conscious of, I, I don't think of myself 
as necessarily elitist because I I think that Spielberg is incredible and I think I have the tiniest bit of self-awareness enough I want to f- position my taste that they're very they're very I'm I'm able to understand that they're very specific to me and they're not like the best thing by mm-hmm. any means at all but it's like very specific to me and I think what's exciting to me is the notion of individual taste um, and I think yeah. that because it's such a I I don't have any sense of the past because I'm very, very young. I'm essentially a puppy, and I'm very ready for the world to kick me in the dick. But um, that will happen. Yeah, I know. Uh, You've seen enough movies too. You've yeah. seen Cassavetes and stuff, so yeah. you know you know what to expect. You know, but it's like I don't. W- would you say this is a question? Because, like I said, I assume that SNL was just always shitty. Would you say that there was a point in the past where it was easier? And felt like less of a heroic task for someone to have a very specific, unique cultural taste. I would say it's been consistently mediocre. Yeah. <laughs> like, even if you go back to the not ready for t- prime time players era, when you had guys like John Belushi and Bill Murray, yeah. if you watched a full 90 minute episode, yeah. not every sketch <laughs> is going to hit home. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Like, but at the same time, I did idealize that when I was younger because my dad had the greatest hits tape yeah. of SNL from that era. Yeah. So I was watching all the best sketches without seeing a full 90-minute episode. So at the time, I was like, oh, my God, that was the best era ever. Yeah, yeah. You know. So, I mean, I definitely romanticized that period. But now, going back, especially if, you know, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but almost every season yeah. was or is on Netflix. If you go back and watch a 90-minute episode from that era, yeah. it's, it's pretty inconsistent. And, yeah. like... To me, they've always had issues, and they've always been bad. I mean, certainly there are eras that were really dreadful, but but it's a show that I think, much like The Simpsons, could have, I don't know, could have gone away, and I would have been okay. Yeah, but I also mean, like, in a larger sense, um, it's, I, uh, I, I personally, you know, I think that the things that you like are very much like part of who you are, right? Like oh, that's, yeah. that's how you figure out what you love um, and what moves you and what you want to spend your life doing. And um, so, but right now, I think to, at least in, in a contemporary sense, I think for a number of reasons, it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge to like have tastes that are your own almost. Um, and I'm wondering before the internet was a thing, was it shaping those tastes? Like, what, what was that process? You know? More or less, um, going to a video store yeah. and seeing what looked good. Sometimes it was something as simple as like going by a cover art mm-hmm. that you go, oh my God, that looks interesting. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I think the reason why I had I'd watched Nightmare on Elm Street 3 um, was because of the the image on the back that kind yeah. of scarred me was yeah. Freddy turning into a snake or something and swallowing oh. Patricia Arquette. Yeah. And I was like, I, I just have to see this image, how it's oh, you dude, know, in I, context. With I saw the, rest the first of the movie. Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Oh my god. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, except like, for the ending. Yeah, except for the ending. But other than that, it's it's really, really good. I was I was um yeah, I was amazed. I think that um Wes Craven as a filmmaker, I think that he's a pretty hit or miss guy. Mm-hmm. You know, and how, and how, yeah. <laughs> like you see that when you're watching his stuff, that it's very much like 
even his, his his style, you know, you can sort of tell when you're watching a Wes Craven movie in that it's like very hit or miss. And then occasionally, like with Scream or Nightmare on Elm Street, it'll be like, holy shit, you know? Yeah. But in a larger sense, hit or miss. I would agree with that. And it's strange that, you know, he came, he came out with some really like raw and primal and visceral movies early on, like Last House on the Left yeah. and uh, uh, Hills Have Eyes. Yeah. And Toby Hooper with Texas Chainsaw Massacre was just like, my God. And then they sort of devolved as time went on to making very schlocky kind of B-level, meh kind of movies. Mm -hmm. I always always thought maybe, well, maybe Toby Toby Hooper will pull out a scream and have a comeback, but that never happened. And now I feel that way about Wes Craven. I'm like, is he ever going to have a comeback again? (laughs) Because I want another sort of scream-like moment from the guy. Because I think he has talent, and I like... Like him as a person, yeah. <laughs> to where I want him to have kind of another resurgence, but yeah. I don't know. And, I don't... It, and it doesn't quite feel like like the John Carpenter thing or even the Sam Raimi thing, where there's enough of a formed personality that even when they're not yeah. at the at their best, you can still depend on sort of their style and their reflexes and how they think about movies to come up with something interesting and exciting. Like, oh god damn it, there's the uh, the John Carpenter movie, um, The Ward. The I Ward, can't... I haven't seen. Oh, okay. I'm talking about the the, the Fog. Oh, dude, isn't that great? Like, yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, I really no, it's love really the atmospheric fog. and good. You know, yeah. I um, I really I love think Prince yeah. of Darkness is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so yeah, there's a lot of yeah. So there's a there's a there's a prickly sort of thing about like taste and like literature and stuff I have, but like also, you know, I love John Carpenter so much. I think John Carpenter is incredible, and I think filmmakers like him are incredible, and I get such a charge out of seeing them, and I think that that's. The other lesson that I learned from Natasha says is that at a, at a certain point, you've got, you got to make a, a goddamn movie. You know, yeah. If you want to you know, start a blog or make a movie, they're th- different things. A movie has, it has, has to be exciting. There are very specific things that a movie does, and sometimes you just need to really, really indulge in those things. Um, you know, Literature and, and books or whatever aside. So how do you feel about the... Uh Technological aspects of making a movie in terms of like I know that I don't know if it's opened up in Chicago yet, but there's this movie Tangerine. I'm God, I'm so excited about yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Um, where it's filmed entirely with an iPhone. Yeah, I um, think. Would you just, ever embrace that? Like openly, just deciding to you know forego eight um, millimeter Super sixteen or yeah. however. I think the thing to figure out is that um, you know everything has Jesus Christ. Like the fact what I'm about to say. All right, everything has different formal qualities, right? Yeah, and so what doing Natasha says on Super 8 was so key to me because then you're able to really like the next thing I'm doing I'm shooting on like a, a DSLR or something myself and that you really get to see what those formal qualities are and my my present understanding of it at least in how I'm employing it is that what's exciting about shooting something on celluloid as an 18 year old who shot something on celluloid is um I say that not to be like, oh, I'm 18, but like, look at me, I'm a piece of shit. I have <laughs> no experience whatsoever. I'm a child. Who, but most 18, you know, and, and so what's exciting about something that's been shot on celluloid is that the image itself is innately gorgeous. Something that you film on celluloid, any object that you film immediately has a resonance and a beauty and, a, and some sort of integrity. It's a thing unto itself. Dig- shooting something digitally feels like you're transcribing and capturing information. Hmm. You know, um, that's an interesting way of looking at. Like it. for uh, Natasha says they they mailed back after it got developed they mailed back the initial film the reel 
it's a corporeal physical object. Right. And when you're editing it, these are corporeal physical images. You don't need to fidget with them. They have a grain and a warmth and integrity unto themselves, and that means that the movie itself feels sort of like an object unto itself. Hmm. You, you get sort of what I mean? Yeah. That it's like, this is a movie. It's a world that's separate from reality. Yeah, like, it's also tangible. Automatically tangible. And you feel that when you're watching it. And we can talk about that with, with Alex Ross Perry later, because he shoots all of his stuff at 16. Um, digital now, especially for the, the Agony of the Achilles, which is the thing that I'm shooting later this week, um, feels like, you, like I said, you are capturing and transcribing raw information. Um, and I think that that, and I, and I think that they are different useful tools for the thing that I'm, I'm for the thing that I'm sh- like, I, I would not shoot something outside and handheld digitally because that's like too much. Y- yeah. You sort of get what I mean? Yeah. Like that's too much amateur. That's too rough. Right. That's right. too much. I think that if you're shooting, I mean, I like, I like the balance of shooting. If you're shooting outside and handheld then shoot it on film. Because mm-hmm. that seems like an interesting formal equation, but then for this next thing, you know, it's sort of like like Brechtian and mainly on a stage set and mainly on tripods, pretty much uniquely on tripods. Then it feels like an interesting thing if you have such a stylized design to then sort of counterweight that by shooting digitally. Okay, like it just feels like a, a sorry, very long tangents. God damn it, I'm not, okay. not a brief don't feel bad thinker, but basically, I think that they're not you know different tools. They doing different things, and you just sort of have to have a. I think it's just about intentionality and specificity, you know. That makes sense to me. I. Uh, it's interesting because like whenever there's somebody, I mean, like I, I agree to some extent with you know guys like Anderson and, and Tarantino that there is an integrity behind it. There's a gorgeous like I mean watching Inherent Vice. Um, I think it was. Uh, gosh, I always get these confused. Sixty millimeter, forty millimeter. I forgot yeah. which one it was on uh, at the Siskel Center. Yeah, you saw the green. Yeah, you saw the warmth, and the colors felt very different than seeing yeah. it in a digital uh, format. So I, I immediately see the differences and why uh, certain filmmakers want to yeah. keep it alive. But then again, I also think of a guy like Soderbergh and what yeah. he uses. Digit, like the red cam and the yeah. digital format to such a degree that you almost you're not aware yeah. of like oh clearly that's digital yeah. well one th- one thing i dislike one thing i dislike is the idea of um trying to push digital until it looks like film because built into that is the <laughs> the supposition that the look of film is the ideal thing and i don't think that's necessarily the case what's more exciting i wonder if he did that with traffic yeah well what's more exciting to me are people like here's an extreme example like guy madden who's Ah. shooting on 5ds but is like here's this digital footage i'm gonna find out what makes something digital and what are all the weird little glitches and experimental things i can find within this digital format and play with and manipulate so that this is has this so that this is a different thing than film and i'm going to treat it like a different thing than film it's not like why would you want to make your sculpture look more like a painting make a goddamn sculpture like that's almost how it feels you know um don't don't try to write a uh you know i could i could do more metaphors but i don't need to um because that would be dumb, but you know, it, it feel it, it, like that's what's more exciting to me almost mm-hmm. is when it's like you don't 
you're not fronting about this being digital and you're not trying to lie about it, but you're accepting it and like trying to develop that. I just think what's important is that sort of like I don't think that celluloid is the ideal. I don't think that just because it makes it feel warm and alive doesn't mean that everything needs to be warm and alive, you know? Right. Like I think that it's just like a, a like I think that David Fincher is impeccably suited to digital. His movies oh, yeah. don't look like film. They That's look digital. Point. They look cold slice like cold slices. They're Gorgeous! I loved *Girl with the Dragon Tattoo*. I saw it twice in theaters, mm-hmm. um, and I because I think it's it's because I think it's a very it's, it's 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 its own thing is is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, and I think that for filmmakers like Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino, yeah, shoot it digitally on 70 millimeter because you can and you make the kind of movies that belong that way. Right. Right. Um, right. But what another thing that bugs me? All right. The angry 18-year-old is angry about this. The other thing that bugs me is the idea that when people are like, who are your favorite filmmakers or what is exciting about cinema? When people list those three names and stop because they're all undeniably very talented, but they're all also pulling from the same pool of resources. And I think that one (laughs) thing that I do get from – and and I think that when when you think about the breadth and depth of film history – it's silly that you're like, oh yeah, the best time was like three years in the middle of the '70s in California. That's so. That becomes so silly when you think about how much stuff is out there, right? You know. But they do say the '70s is the golden era of cinema, with you know, like the the, the Taxi Driver. You know, like just so many. There's so. It was a revolutionary time. Revolutionary time, but also not like the ideal. Similar to the way that just because. Uh, 70 millimeter celluloid is this and this and this that doesn't mean that 70 millimeter celluloid celluloid is the best and only in the end all be all right you know that's that's what irks me oh I can understand that totally I mean there's I still go back you know and watch older films even something like uh, The Servant where I was just kind of like blown away by how subversive it was for its time yeah and even something like The Apartment there's a scene where a doctor is slapping Shirley MacLaine around and and I think it's just in context of seeing something like that in that time period, it's more jarring. Yeah. And I think it makes it more powerful. Or I like, think that dude, those movies are actually as important as a Tarantino movie. Or, or like something. The, the Sam Fuller stuff. The Sam Fuller is amazing. Yeah. Like the my baseline, like like the the. You'll probably be on for Sam Fuller next year, so. Oh, if awesome. you want to be. Yeah, absolutely. I because uh, <laughs> he's somebody I've been wanting to do for a while. Yeah, the, the baseline affections for me are like I really get excited about like, like Sam Fuller and uh, Nick Ray. And Orson Welles. And those aren't like revolutionary tastes, but I think that what I like about them yeah. is um, they have this really gripping thing they do with people and shapes and bodies um, that's really visceral um, and also isn't, isn't not at all quote-unquote realist. Like I think that there's yeah. this, you know, like they don't make realist movies, but they do make movies about people. Um, and they're movies doing things that movies can do and that like theater can't do. Um, and I think that that's really exciting and invigorating. Yeah, Orson Welles would invent... Uh, angles, you yeah. know, like just drill a hole into the seal or you know the, the the floor, so you can tilt the camera up to get a low angle shot and make yeah. somebody look taller, larger than life, in in a almost yeah. uh, surrealist fashion. And I think that's something that up until that point nobody else was doing. Nobody else was like sort of yeah. challenging. Let's put the camera here and yeah. do this kind of crazy shit. And I think that's why he's considered such a revolutionary And there's, a, there's an interview with him where he's talking about how he's excited about a time when cameras will be so small that you can put them wherever you want and then just put whatever lens you want on them. And that's what we have right now. And so whenever, like, 
People he would have loved like, to have directed the Truman Show. Though. Yeah, but like whenever people are, are like, <laughs> you know, just uh, celluloid and uh, classic cinema. You're, Old man. Yeah, yeah, like that sort of like anger. You're you're Peter Bogdanovich, for example, getting all grumpy and <laughs> and 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 ascotty. You oh, know, Dustin Hoffman too. Dustin Hoffman, your dude Orson Welles would have adored having a 5D. He would have loved it. He would have made so much work. Yeah. He would be making stuff all the time for no money. I'm sure Hitchcock would have loved it. Hitchcock would have loved it too. Your gods would be so into digital and they'd find something interesting to do with it. Yeah. You know, and that's, and, and as, as, as someone who's 18 and making movies, that sort of thing irks me. That being said, I adored shooting on Super 8 and I would leap at the chance to shoot on, um, more celluloid, but I would also never abandon the possibilities of shooting on digital. I don't think I, I think mm. it's I think it's dumb to be like I want to be this or that. Right, I agree with that. I just wonder if you would come across that sort of film school elitist guy in the, in the class, like I won't even shoot on celluloid, celluloid because that's a, that's the purity of cinema. Yeah, you know, I wonder if like that still exists out there, if it's totally open minded towards the digital revolution at this yeah. point. Because yeah, people are shooting films on on, on, yeah. on iPhones, and I'm just like, yeah. wow, that's wild. Yeah. But that being said, I think that some things some things are some things are just uh, some things are bad. Like yeah. I, th- I think that that's I think that um, that it's like yes, you can do whatever you want, but it's also like um, I think that my thinking about movies is very like I I could never do like a web series, and I don't get excited about web series. <laughs> I don't get excited about having a YouTube yeah. channel. You know, I think very much. You know, when I, when I make the short films, it's a very much like something I put a lot of work and time into, and it's a yeah, I work as hard as possible to have be this fully formed aesthetic statement. I also worry that you just essentially become a face in the crowd when you're doing that. When you have like just a blog or a YouTube channel or something like. Even to some extent, like putting out a podcast was worrisome to me because I'm like, how many movie podcasts are out yeah. there already? What yeah. am I going to do to make stand up? But, you know, I just thought like certainly there are other podcasts that have done the director format. But at the same time, it's like what I've done since maybe age six, because I had a portable tape recorder. And sometimes when I was hanging out with my family. I would hit record mm-hmm. and I would archive our conversations on little cassette tapes. Yeah. All I thought of this was like as a way to archive conversations I have with people who are passionate about what they love to talk about. Yeah. So that's, that's how I delightful. approach it as opposed to like yeah. thinking we have to stand out and we have to yeah. make sure that we you know the best podcast. Which so just yeah. it is what it is. I think that was kind of what I was circling around when it, with the the opening question about like um, like what is what is the Jim podcast as opposed to the Patrick podcast? Not that I don't think that you're both delightful, but that I think that what's always been exciting and appealing to me about Directors Club podcast is the 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 chattiness of it and the way you guys hit this very specific tone that is not needlessly academic, but that also is not like um you know that Tim Heidecker fanboyish. Yeah, like you know that Tim Heidecker YouTube series you know what I'm talking about? I think so. Where it's um uh You know how I feel about him though, right? You don't like him? I don't like Tim and Eric. That's fine. Like, they're, they're not very likable, um, but like, but but also not exactly not not too fanboyish. Not like um, you know, oh man, I saw a blank movie and it Star was Wars. awesome. Star Wars, you know, it's, it's, it's not that, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's also not um, too you know, dry and stuffy. Too and... dry and stuffy. That it's it's it is people and personalities chatting about movies, and that's always I think felt it's very alive remain that. and exciting. Um, I mean, I certainly am open to having another co-host. That's I don't want to say similar to Patrick, but it's just 
I imagine wanting the same live dynamic to yeah. continue. Well, you need and a little, not just make it all Skype, Skype, Skype. Yeah, you need vinegar people. for your honey, right? That's yeah. the, that's the yeah. disgusting metaphor I just came up with. Well, I don't mind being challenged. Like I did not mind at all when you know Patrick didn't like somewhere. Yeah, I was like, here's why I think it's good. Damn it! Well, it's like that tension motivates the podcast. That's why it's yeah, yeah. exciting, and, and it happens, and it, yeah. sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we just oh, yeah. both fall head over heels over something like upstream color. Yeah. So, I mean... I really love Rob Zombie. I love Rob Zombie's movies. Why? Um, I think because... You're getting along so well. Yeah. Well, it's like... It, that doesn't mean... I haven't seen somewhere. That doesn't mean that I'll hate somewhere. Um, I like The Virgin Suicides. That's the only Sofia Coppola movie I've seen. Yeah, so, pretty good. Um, but it's also like because... Um, I th- And this is, again, it's a personal taste thing. I, I tend to... I am more excited by people who are trying something new, even if they fail, than if they're doing something very, you know, like classic and very, very cleanly. And that's, so, that's what, something Patrick would say. Yeah. For and so, sure. so what I like about yeah. Rob Zombie is that, regardless of whether or not it's good, he took the most tried and recycled like genre in American cinema and did something new with it. I respect that intention. I don't like the execution of it. Yeah, that's fair. I um I can openly say, if I ever met Rob Zombie, I'd be like, you know, I. I I dig your um, intention to sort of capture that 70s raw horror aesthetic. Yeah. But there's just some, like, level of self-awareness in what in how he's doing it. Like, yeah. I just, I can't explain it. Like, it's just almost abrasive in that way. Like, like I'm going to capture that, and here it is, everybody. And I was like, I don't know why. Like, maybe yeah. it is... A genuine, sincere love for that era, and he's trying to recreate it, while I just think of it as almost like um, winking. Um, Like, look at this. This is very much like a 70s horror movie, and here we go, and this is... Let me throw in Freebird, and I don't know. Like, sometimes filmmakers seem a little too clever to, to for well, their own I, good. I would never call Rob Zombie clever. <laughs> I, I think of him as kind of like an outsider artist, you know, in yeah. that it's like no metrics of quality apply to what he's doing. But that doesn't mean that I, it, there's not like, this is weird. And it's so... He is weird. It's so rare to come across a movie that's genuinely weird. Like, there are tons of movies that are good. Tarantino makes good movies, but he doesn't make weird movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Pulp Fiction is a really, really good movie built upon the skeletons of movies that are genuinely weird and would not appeal to everyone. It has weird moments, for sure. Weird moments, but there's, like, a a genuine cult thing that Rob Zombie taps into. He wants to be that, but he's so, like, fucked up and, like, the opposite of clever that it, like, it works. It reminds me of, you know, Lester Bangs? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a Lester Bangs, like, review of... Um, a Black Sabbath album where he's like, <laughs> this might, where I'm going to paraphrase, where he's like, this art, I know how it sounds, but go back and listen to their first album and then listen to this album. And within that spectrum, there's a huge amount of growth. Hmm. You know? Well, I mean, I won't deny that there's a restraint and control behind something like Devil's Rejects that isn't there in House of a Thousand Corpses. God, that's such a mess of a movie. Devil's Rejects? No, House of oh, yeah, Corpses. Yeah, it is. But for some reason, I I liked the messiness of it more than I liked the consistency of Devil's Rejects, which is weird because, like, 
I think if Rob Zombie wants to fuck around and be goofy and strange, I don't mind that. But like him genuinely trying to make like a you know a Last House and Left Hills Have Eyes, he can, era he, movie. he can never do that because he's not. There's there's no sense of the genuine to him. Genuine to him. There's no, no. sense of the genuine. There's no sense of the. And then when I recently saw horror. Texas Manch- Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, yeah, I was like. Oh, okay. So that's what he's trying to do. Like yeah. it's it's really aggressive, raw, loud, angry, like a punk rock song or yeah. something. Like and people love that, and yeah. I don't. I, I understand that. And people like Gregor Racky movies too. But yeah. for some reason, it just it feels like a big middle finger to yeah. me, and I don't yeah. like that. <laughs> like, well, speaking of big middle fingers, like, do you want to? Yeah, let's do it. Alex Ross Perry. Alex Ross Perry. Let's start with what I like about Alex Ross Perry. Um, I think first and foremost, his dialogue. I think it's sharp, smart, well-observed. Really cuts to the core of who these characters are. And like you mentioned, he's really inspired by contemporary authors like Pinchon and Philip Roth and Richard Yates. Uh, I think he's just in love with the spoken word. And you know, the two movies I've seen of his are very talky. But not in a way that irks me the way like some Kevin Smith movies have in the past. Yeah. They really enhance the character's internal struggle rather than comes across as ostentatious. I, I think he's really great at depicting sort of a personal entitlement. Um, like, I feel entitled to have this because I am this. And yet it's mixed with this, like I mentioned earlier, a, a certain sadness and loneliness that comes with narcissism and how being self-absorbed can attract and repel people at yeah. the same time. I think, yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the interesting question with Alex, Alex Ross Perry is you list the things that he does and he sounds just like every other like young contemporary filmmaker making movies about us. So then it's a question of what makes him different? Because tons of people are about like, you know... Um, White bohemian entitlement. Yeah, you know, so like Whit Stillman, Hal Hartley, Whit Richard Stillman, Linklater, all those Richard guys. Linklater. But even, yeah. even like contemporarily speaking, you know, like the, the Swanberg dudes and the oh yeah, you know, the Mumblecore stuff, Alina Dunham. Mm-hmm. So how is Alex Ross Perry different? And I think that in the and I think that what what's different about him to me is that he thinks of himself as making movies first, almost. And like what I mean by that is that. Um, while the the situations, if you describe them to someone, seem sort of realist and like a mumblecore thing, and mumblecore mm-hmm. is all about like we're shooting this on TV, we are capturing this. This is just obs- observational. They are Alex Ross Perry's things are designed to be entertaining and propulsive and fun. That I think that what's compelling about them is that they are talky, but there's this tremendous sense of speed and of design which is really invigorating. 
There are some people who would argue the fun factor when it comes to that <laughs> comes I with the uh, Jason Schwartzman character in particular because I never bought the whole. I can't get into this movie because there's no <laughs> likable characters. Yeah, I never got that at all. I mean, look at yeah. Citizen Kane. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's lots of movies that have come and gone that yeah. no unlikable, no likable yeah. characters. So, I mean, the but, other thing I think that starting off with Liz and Up Philip. Um, I was like transfixed when I first saw it. I think it's the it's the most vigorous the open all right. The narrative that Generation X is like, oh, we're all uh snide and and cynical, um and that like the millennial generation is like, oh, we're uh, gentle, delicate. <laughs> I think that's sort of blown apart when you have this like 29, 30-year-old kid and within the first five minutes of his movie, um, you have this incredible flurry of, number one, Philip has called up his friend to berate him. Right. 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 So number one, so he's just berating him. He pulls out like this thing that you wrote together in college of all these things that were did together. And he's like berating him for being a failure. He crumples this thing up, tries to throw it into a glass and of beer. And the punch in the misses, gun. Misses. And uh, boom. No. And then the wheelchair yeah, guy the calls wheelchair. him. Calls him a Jew, and then it turns out like like, like in this very like aggressive way. So you have a- a- anti-Semitism, and then he pulls out, and he's in a wheelchair. Right. That reveal of the wheelchair is structured as a gag. It's a wheelchair gag. That's ridiculous. Uh, it's it's a sad gag. <laughs> it's a sad gag, but it like and it's like if there's a running theme through Alex, I think that and so that there's this really like angry sense of humor to his movies Ooh, yeah. that feels invigorating as opposed to alienating for me. And I think part of it is because his protagonists are never held up as heroic. They're always like Good point. pretty pathetic, but also like self-possessed. Mm-hmm. I think that there's an honesty to his vision. Um, and Philip, we're with Philip, but we're always... We empathize with Philip to a certain uncomfortable extent, but there's also a very clear-eyed vision of Philip and Ike. Do you feel discomfort watching Listen Up, Philip? I do. At some of his actions, some of the characters' actions. Let me think. Because, like, one thing that I thought about watching it the second time was Louis C.K. Um, yeah. Because, like, there's this push-and-pull feeling, and I know people who completely put off yeah. by Louis C.K., and I think he's a genius. Absolutely. Um, but there is this push and pull between, you know, um, discomfort and laughing. Yeah. That's like really intense and yeah. really like it just. Uh, I nope. mean, and I feel that way a little bit throughout. Listen up, Philip. Just because the, some of the things Jason Schwartzman says and does is so despicable. Yeah. That I just want to punch me, him in me, the face. Let me think. I think that the. Um, I think that the thing that was. Well, let me think. One, one, I, the scene I, I definitely felt like a tremendous degree of not tremendous, but you know, a solid amount of discomfort in was uh, when he's when he's being photographed, when they're like yeah. photographing him, and he's just like, "Let's go." Take I would never hold this, this book thing. up. Yeah, and he's just such an asshole. Um, but I think that there's also like a true sort of. I think, but Jason Schwartzman is also very charismatic. And the second time I watched it, I began to see like how he's charismatic, and you can see how he could attract someone, especially when when he's with the the French teacher. Yeah, that you know, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. got this mysterious mysterious dad. He's very lonely, but he's also 
uh, very smart, and these things are charismatic. And then when he, run, he runs away and does this, the thing with the socks, and then in, in the voiceover, we hear, you know, he's, he's basically, he has depression. Like, we, ga- we gain that from the voiceover. That there's, yeah, he, does, he doesn't find pleasure yeah, at all. Yeah, he doesn't find pleasure at all. And I think that um, a lot of reviews, a lot of negative reviews were like, we've seen this all before. We haven't. Point me to a movie, you know, that, that specifically takes this sort of, um, I've seen movies where you have a character like this who's ultimately forgiven or ultimately downplayed. But something that is as, as, as unflinching as Listen Up Philip that is also fair to everyone involved, I think that um, Elizabeth Moss detour is beautiful. Yes. I think Elizabeth Moss is incredible. Um, it's my favorite performance of hers so far. Yeah. And we have to see her the next movie. I'm very excited about <laughs> Queen of Earth. Yeah. I, I think because he's like I, – because I said earlier that I'm excited about like Fuller and Ray where their narratives, right, Rebel Without a Cause, not realistic at all. But human mm-hmm. and connects with us. I think that uh, Ross Perry reminds me of that in that his characters are movie characters, which I think are weirdly, weirdly a thing that you don't see that much. And when I say movie characters, I mean that they are larger than life, you know, something like a Humphrey Bogart character or something. Maybe, you know? yeah, I can see that a little bit. But, and a little bit stylized. And you could see them, you know, they're, they're, and that, that larger than lifeness is something that I wouldn't, don't see, for example, in While We're Young. And I don't. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I'm saying that like what's ex- more exciting to me is something that is a, is like listen to Philip, which is really like exciting. I think the only movie that could come close to capturing the same vibe, at least I don't know necessarily aesthetically, but I, I even think I heard on a podcast that he was really inspired by Husbands and Wives, mm. Woody Allen's Husbands and Wives. Um, and that has like a sort of verite approach and, yeah. you know, um, really confrontational, yeah. really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Abrasive and yeah. like really intense with how people talk to one another and are mean to one another and sort of unapologetic about yeah. it. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting because like I never really thought of him as a Woody Allen type of guy and yet, yeah. you know, husbands and wives okay, I can yeah. see that vibe seeping well, I, into this. I think that he has a sort of clear-eyedness and a perspective that I don't find so much in the Woody Allen stuff. Um, and yeah. this, this is this is, again, like I don't like, um, like in Manhattan I don't know, there's just a there's a, there's a, a self, an ability to self-reflect and to distance oneself maybe because I mean, like even even in um, even in the color wheel, he's playing one of the main characters, and he's still like, yeah, this guy's kind of a pathetic piece of shit. Yeah, but he still makes you you know empathize with him. Um, I was also thinking, uh, nope, lost it. That's okay. Um, I was I had an idea that is weird, but I don't doubt it because I'm sure this happens to a lot of uh, writer directors. Mm-hmm. But for for listen up, Philip, I was wondering if Philip and Ashley are essentially. You know, there's no way to know, but projections of his personality. Yeah. And, like, he split these two sides. Like, maybe he has moments where he is Philip, and he has moments where he is Ashley, and they're two diametrically opposed perspectives fighting it out. That's the psychoanalysis yeah. part of me, well, but... I should, yeah, I, I, think, I think so. I think, I, um, just to clarify, like, I am unabashedly, like, a tremendous Alex Ross... The only Alex Ross Perry fanboy. I'm a huge fan. I'm not, sure they're, they're out hopefully there. Hopefully they're, they're more. Getting... I'll, I'll find them. 
they're gaining more traction. I'm a huge fan of him, so I've I've read lots of interviews. And like number one, like the, yeah, he's he's very uh, Philip E. Both in the the style of speaking, you know, mm-hmm. um, and in the like the even like down down to the hairstyle. Um, but he's also talked a lot in inter- interviews about how um, he and Philip are very much separate things that there's a which of course he's going to say that you're not going to make Henry portrait of a serial killer and then be like oh yeah Henry's me Henry's absolutely me you know they're, you're, you're going to want to put that distance in there but it's also like I, I mean and that's sort of what's exciting to me about listening to Philip is that it's like yes definitely his own personality but also this is a, a movie character it's he's an a, exaggeration you know, of yeah. some component of personality yeah. that probably exists because it came from him clearly yeah but it's it's also really off-putting at times because he's just he's an asshole and he's continuously an asshole yeah. and I can see people I don't necessarily feel this way because I don't think it spins its wheels um, but there are people who find it a little tedious because you know we're spending so much time with Jason Schwartzman and by the time we get to him with the French lady um, it's just constant a cycle and I think there's that there's intent and a deliberation in portraying that cycle like mm-hmm. he's just never going to break it that's yeah. what the, that's what the point of the movie is almost yeah. so we get to experience that yeah. sort of same pattern over and over and over again with him and i'm curious to know what your thoughts are on the narration because i'm sure that's a divisive yeah. uh, technique that you know a lot yeah. of people feel well I one think, way or the other about I, I think that it gives us a necessary perspective on philip i think that without the narration it would be like uh it's a bitter pill to swallow I also think that I one of the things that I like about the film is that it's not a redemption narrative. Right. That it doesn't soft pedal. He doesn't, uh, there's Philip. no arc for him. And I think what's also interesting about it is... Well, I think that its structure is fascinating because you have... It's a very dense structure and that you have this narration and then you have um, Alex Ross Perry... But he's there. He's a, a supporting player in a number because there's the there, his relationship to the Elizabeth Moss character, and then there's him on his own. But then there's also this long segment with the Elizabeth Moss character, and then there's also this long segment with uh, Ike right. and Ike's relationship to his daughter. Mm-hmm. And everyone there is treated. Everyone in the film, to me, is treated very fairly and very humanely. Yeah, you know. And I think that the narration helps us um, both in the the. Speed, simultaneous speed and density was invigorating to me that the narration gives, that there's so much information coming at you, number one. And number two, uh, like I said before, it really helps us, helps by giving us a window into Philip without softening him. Um, Like, it's a very... Alex Strauss Perry makes very animalistic, savage movies. It's just that his character's express themselves articulately but you're still essentially very savage and that savagery doesn't necessarily give you a clear sense of self-awareness or a clear ability to articulate your emotions at any given point yeah his characters say things that you shouldn't normally say yeah yeah (laughs) and i think that's really jarring it's really difficult to hear because in real life I mean, how many times have you heard, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all? But here, it's the opposite. It's like, if you have something mean to say, get say it out. It. Yeah, get it out. And that's, that's refreshing. And I think that in Listen to Philip, the narration is a, is a beneficial sort of counterpoint to that. Um, I can and see a, that. A, and, a, and a sort of um, not a, a distancing, necessarily. Like, I didn't find it off-putting. 
um, but it fills in space and it allows the narrative, it allows the film to be, to move very quickly. Yeah, narration is often seen as a crutch, but here I think it... it it's an aesthetic device. Yeah, you know? I think it complements the movie, it complements the character, and I also thought of it maybe as like an extension of what he would write, yeah. maybe. Like yeah. about that situation, that moment. Because the first time I saw it, I was kind of kind of bummed that we didn't get the final moment between um, you know uh, Philip and Ashley yeah. together with the door between them. I really, really felt like why is the narrator talking over this moment? Because yeah. it would be so much more intense and powerful if we get to experience these characters saying these things in that moment. Yeah. But here's the narrator sort of interjecting yeah. and giving us this sort of internal version of what's going on. Yeah. Well, I think to me, part of that is that Ashley has already cut Philip out of her life. And we saw that process. Yeah. Um, and so that this door is closed to Philip, I think... Literally. Literally. <laughs> you know, and I think that the, the monologue gives us a sense of the... Uh, the Internal. I don't know. Yeah. I think that, um, and I think that what's also really interesting about the film, what 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 I liked about it is that, you know, this idea of do people change? Can people change? Ashley is capable of change, um, and um, Ike's daughter, whose name I forget, I forget her name too, um, is capable of change. They're capable of, you know, it's the girl who overdosed on Breaking Bad, <laughs> exactly. You know, and um, and the, that awesome scene, the psychic where Philip goes to see the, the ex girlfriend, and she like ends up running away from him. Oh man! All of the, the women in the film are capable of change. Um, Ike and Philip are sort of set on these courses. But one thing that I did like about the film is that it doesn't never makes the argument that to be creative or a successful creative, you have to be an unrepented asshole. <laughs> you know, it, it never really quite makes that argument. And that's why, like, when I was watching it, I was thinking about, I would watch it, like, right next to Whiplash, which I think is a very well-made, good movie. But I also disliked that Whiplash made the argument that for creativity to function, this is what you have to do. You have to have J.K. Simmons screaming berate at you, you. Berate you. And it's, it's actually very much not, you know? I think it can work for some people. That's what my argument was for yeah. that movie is like maybe getting that kind of, you know, disciplinary yelling and screaming um, can work. Yeah, I'm not saying it would work for me. I'm not saying it would work for everybody. I don't. I don't think that's how teachers should teach, uh, you know, on a normal basis. But like for some people, maybe. Yeah, it actually. It actually. <laughs> but it's also an yeah. exaggerated movie version of that. It reminded me of uh, Hannibal more than anything else. And that you <laughs> Whiplash reminded you of Hannibal. Whipl- yeah, because you have this very intense. Um, well, number one, you have something like you have a profession which is then but you're dealing with an alternate version of that that's like this operatic thing you have this really incredible rhythmic filmmaking you have this weird like um a very strong male masochistic sadomasochistic uh relationship and the one between jk simmons and the other guy and then hannibal between will graham and hannibal Mm -hmm. um and you don't watch Hannibal for a discourse on how psychology works and you don't or therapy at all and you don't watch Whiplash for a discourse on how drumming or creativity works um, you know you watch them because they're taking place in these alternate universes and they're both really white knuckle things yeah I would agree with that to some extent like I, I always say like Hannibal is more like the Cliff's Notes 
base version of psychology where it's not realistic yeah. at all. But at the same time, I get some sort of charge out of the duality that's on play between the two characters and like how yeah. they complement each other and yet at the same time clearly Will is wanting to break free but yeah. he's still invested in Hannibal um, and you'll see what becomes of that soon enough when you watch yeah. the latest episode but yeah. it's like that's that's an interesting parallel that I never thought about but I also think with now that you mentioned with the male characters there's there's kind of a like a draw for Alex Ross Perry to um, openly do something that I'm trying to think of another filmmaker is happy to do, which is emasculation. Mm-hmm. And sort of like give women the empowerment to change and let the men sort of like um, dwell in their uh, misery and like yeah. never evolve and just I, sort I, of... I don't know if they're necessarily emasculated, in fact. They're both very masculine, but I, the, the, their, their, their unchanging nature is perhaps rooted within... Um, their masculinity. Yeah. You know? Okay. It's not so much emasculation. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, I, th- I think, but I think that that also is, I mean, it's, it's, it's the question of, um, and this is the thing, the circle that I get into a lot of the time, just because someone's doing something that hasn't been done before, does that mean that it's good? You know? And like, that's, that I get into that circle a lot, because I really, really respond to Hannibal, because no one's ever done this stuff on television. No. Um, well, let alone in, in cinema, really, recently, you know, in the non-television stuff. Um, but then, is it good? And for me, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not satisfied with something that's, like, I don't know what it, like a, like, a television drama that's, like, you know, doing everything that's been done before, but really, really well. That's never really, you know, increased my wheels. I don't know if that's a thing. I, uh, and I think that, you know, in Alex Ross Perry's stuff, that's really invigorating and exciting to me, too. At the same time, I think even we can go to the color wheel a little bit because I think Listen Up, Philip um, is a much better movie. I think yeah. it plays, like, it shows a filmmaker growing yeah. and showcases his strengths. Color wheel is a little rusty. Yeah. I still like it a lot. Yeah. I still really, like, gravitate towards the dialogue and the characters throughout most of the yeah. movie. But I will say... He goes too far, <laughs> and we know kind of what, you know yeah. where I'm going with yeah. this. And obviously, if you haven't seen the movie, skip ahead a little bit, a um, couple minutes, just because I think we should just get it out of the way. Yeah, where this movie goes. The incest bummed you out. It didn't bum me out. I just kind of went. You really had to go there. I, I mean, it almost felt like um, I want to do this just to shock you. Yeah, kind of like I mean, maybe that sexual tension's been there the whole time, and I just it wasn't I mean, registering you, with if me. You, if you watch the movie for it, it is there. They're constantly talking about each other as and like, I know the hotel sexual scene, and, yeah, yeah, and, and then it's like um, you know the the changing and the constant. It's a uh, it is like a like I mean, to, watching it again to me, it was very much a fixation. I agree that a lot of the time, like for the first half. It feels like a clever, abrasive student film. Yeah. But then the first scene where I really like sat up and was like, "This is special and interesting." Was um, when they arrived at the professor's yes, house. Yes, I agree. And that back and forth, I actually rewound it several times the first time I watched it. Just that's to, me like that's the listen up, Philip. Yeah. Alex Ross Perry. Just to, to watch the camera work and the guy playing the professor. It's such a magnificent piece of shit, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Um, and just it's 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 crazy. And then. Immediately after that, we also see the first time that there that there is a, a relationship between them when there's this 
rattling all off that uh, Alex Ross Perry's character does, where it's like, that's so fun. Where, what are we going to go to next? And he's like, like abortion factory, just this these horrible like yeah. made up things. But then it's like now we that's see hilarious. that he's it's hilarious, but it's also something that he's doing for her. He's commiserating for her, you know. Um, and this like pathetic thing happened, and now they're both they're even more a unit. And I think that the and then also like I really did. I, I liked that. I felt really satisfied that the the nine minute take, you oh, know, yeah. because they've always and it, it doesn't. It's at odds with the rest of the movie, but it's so good and it comes at the very end that it feels apt, and that also you know in the leading up to that point, there's so much that's done to isolate these two people from literally everyone else in the entire world. I you agree. Know? I love the shot, the way it culminates. Yeah. I just kind of go oh. Like, I almost didn't think it was necessary. I mean, maybe it was leading towards that, and maybe he has a point in doing that. It's almost like, okay, here is Alex Ross Perry subverting the expectations of a road trip movie, of a romantic comedy. Yeah. It's all there. And now he really wants to subvert expectations by having the brother and sister fuck. Like, that's what it felt like to me, in a way. Like, uh, it rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, for me, I got um, I got an emotional charge out of it. But speaking of like, Ben I, is pro incest, by the way. No, ben, I'm just kidding. No, just that's kidding. that's that is the narrative of this episode. I am pro incest. I think that it's a uh, it's an interesting narrative tool. God, but it all. It, just speaking of that sort of like um, shock schlock sort of thing. I recently had a, a Lars von Trier binge because watching his oh movies. Oh God, are you okay? Yeah, I'm are fine. Are you in therapy? I think that nymphomaniac. I think that he. I think that he's. I think that Nymph- Nymphomaniac is really funny, uh, but I also think that I think parts of it are very funny. Yeah, yeah, it's like he's, I want to watch the director's cut. Yeah. and just sit down and watch the whole it's thing like, sometime. The secret of Lars von Trier is that he's really, really good filmmaker. He's really, really good no, at like Kalia putting rules. images together. It's just that so much of the time he's intent on like fucking that up and trying to make and trying to break the rules of cinema. But he, he's really, really adept. But yeah, and I felt like the ending of Color Real is his Lars von Trier moment. Yeah, but those quote unquote Lars von Trier moments to me, I gain immense emotional fulfillment and satisfaction from because they make me feel something in a way that I don't usually feel discomfort. Discomfort, <laughs> but also fulfillment. I feel like I've eaten a full meal. Afterwards, oh. you know, I feel like I've gained something from from these shocking from like like Dogville, the relentless oh, shit. That's a masterpiece, you know. That Nicole Kidman goes through. I feel like I've gained something from that. It feels good. Um, and s- similarly for like you know a number of his movies, I I would not want to watch them all the time. Um, no, but they do something for me that cinema that is not as aggressive does not do. And I think yeah. that I gained that from the color wheel. I also feel like that's like the one piece of it's like they at there's some sort of emotional culmination. There's something, you know. I don't know. I I, I thought the incest was a plus. A moment of catharsis. A moment for them. of yeah. A moment of catharsis. That, that if they just like curled up and like fallen asleep. I don't know. Then it would be like, well, do do they do they fuck? Because I don't. You know. Then it would feel maybe like I would like something. the ambiguity part of it more. The I ambiguity, don't know. but then it would feel like you know. I think that I think that part of it is that Alex Ross Perry is secretly let that tension play out in my head <laughs> as opposed I, to I, actually seeing. I it. think he's secretly like a showman. I think the secret of yeah. him is that he like he's gonna go for some sort of finale if he can. Um, but it felt more like shock value. Yeah, it really did. It didn't felt feel like 
I don't know, emotionally true, it felt more like a shock value thing to me. And that's just like, because I'd gone from Listen Up, Philip to The Color Wheel, yeah. and Listen Up, Philip doesn't have that, yeah. I, I wanted the, something the, more yeah. pure and sincere. I think it might also be, like, my perspective is, uh, as an 18-year-old, I look at Alex Ross Perry's movies and think, hey, I'm like... Three years from now, I could I could do this shit. You know, I could. This is uh, this is totally one hundred percent doable. Yeah. And so then I'm like w- way more forgiving. I'm way more like I watch the color wheel, and it's like I'm. I feel like I'm watching the work of someone who's like a couple years older than me because I am a near contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, I'm like way more forgiving, and that every ever and the incest feels like a win. <laughs> so you're. Gonna- have a lot of incest in your movies. A lot of incest in my movies. Okay, that's um, fine. That's fine. I understand yeah. that's your thing. Everybody has their thing. Everyone has their like stylistic sort of sign off. Yeah, I yeah. understand. That's fine. I mean, it's, it doesn't kill the movie for me entirely because like I love every. I love the road trip. I love the hotel scene. I love the party scene where yeah. he makes out with the with the girl and yeah. everything. Oh my I, God. I adore Carlin Altman. Yeah, Carlin Altman is the best. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really good movie that I just I don't know I. And so, with the very, very final shot, um, the door opens. Does that mean she goes back to him or something? I can't remember like exactly what happens. I, but he drives away. It looks like he's about to drive away. I mean, she gets out of the car. She goes back into her boyfriend's house, mm-hmm. and then I think he's about to drive away. But then the front door opens for a split second, and then we cut to the cut to the credits. So I'm, I'm trying to get a read on what that ending is. Trying to say like, my door's always open to you. I, I, I remember I watched it. I watched it um, earlier this week, and so my my memory of the the ending shot isn't quite that sharp. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what it was trying to convey. I think it was just my mind was kind of fogged up from the fucking. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just I I will say like. We have yet to see his first film and his latest film. Yeah. So it's hard to gauge. Exa- like I can, I can easily say that on the basis of the two films I've seen, that I am a fan. Yeah. Hardcore. I really like where he's going, um, and the fact that his latest film is sort of compared to Polanski and Let's Scare Jessica yeah, to I'm Death. I'm very excited about it. Um, it's like supposed to be really psychologically dark. Yeah. And, and you know, Elizabeth yeah. Moss and is the back. Ca- Catherine Waterston and yeah. Elizabeth Moss. That's yeah. impeccable. Yeah. You that's going to be, it's going to be really good for acting. I know that much. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, knowing him and how, like how intense he gets, I'm just like, oh, man, I better prepare myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about that. Um, and, and, uh, yeah. And Pollux is, I think it's, not available anywhere. No, but it's also it was again exciting for me because it's like what what kind of what kind of what kind of asshole <laughs> is like I'm gonna make my first movie. You know what I'm gonna do in this age of everyone being terrified of like filmmaking and film as a career and everyone's like oh no what's gonna happen in my life? You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take Gravity's Rainbow and adapt it into like an 80 minute weird movie about someone wandering around in the woods carrying a fake rocket and I'm gonna have a live octopus. And it's going to be great. Who does that? Like that, the audacity of that alone is exciting to me, you know, <laughs> as an 18-year-old. That that's, yeah, the, that, well, that, that's the move that you make for your first movie. It's not like, well, I'll try to, you know, cobble together like a, like a sub-sub-Fault in Our Stars sort of like, you know. So in a way, maybe like, you know, seeing Listen Up, Philip for you is almost what 
slacker was for Kevin Smith in a way. I mean, obviously Don't you're going to you're going to you're going to be way better than Kevin Smith. Yeah. But I'm just saying like and I understand that. I mean, even to some extent when I saw Clerks, I was like, "Oh, I just want to make a movie with me and my friends hanging out and talking." Yeah. Like I I go back and watch that movie now and I just think it's really overwritten and ridiculous. Yeah. But I can imagine what that feeling is like. And yeah. you know, Slacker is a really important film for its time. And yeah. you know, sort of in the same way that like Sex Lies and Videotape kicked off this independent new wave film spader, movement spader, and and, and spader, Sundance spader, tape. Spader, spader, spader. Yeah. So much spader. Still my favorite Soderbergh movie. Yeah. Um, and like there's just these moments in time where that happens. And like right now, especially with like VOD and people having Wait, a sorry. lot of access to movies. So anyway, um, we mentioned plenty about Alex Ross Perry, and we're mm-hmm. both fans, and Absolutely. really looking forward to his next film. Uh, anything that follows too. I'm curious to know more about some other films you've seen mm-hmm. that would sort of be classified as independent cinema. Like, yeah. how do you feel about this? The you know, I don't know if it's necessarily classified as the mumblecore movement anymore, but like your your Joe Swanbergs, Mark yeah. Duplass, yeah. Uh, Lynn Shelton, that sort of stuff. It's yeah. just really sort of uh, intimate. Well, the the things that I can uh, talk about uh, recently are there's uh, the overnight Patrick Price, yes, and um, boo, 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 and uh, God damn it, and Buzzard Joel Petrikas, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Nothing else leaps to mind. Well, hold on. And then there's also this 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 horror movement, right? With oh, of course. They live and the I guests. think there's a horror renaissance, of course. Yeah, and then Ty West or T West yeah. made the sacrament, it's... which was a little bit like Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I wish I liked it more. But uh, the House of the Devil is outstanding. You know, I really adore that. Did you hear that, Patrick? Uh, yeah, yeah. I like House of the Devil, I think, but yeah, and I think I think part of it is that, like, with the House of the Devil, I have a I have a big appetite for like classic destruction, destruction, but also for a classic experimental cinema, <laughs> like the like the Michael Snow thing, um, like wavelength. Oh, you know. Oh, okay, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Be, Because yeah, yeah. of that, and because um, I share sort of his fetishization. Um, also because the the actress the main character is is very very attractive and I could watch her like walking around a house I have no issue with that you know I didn't mind the fact that the explosion of violence at the end of House of the Devil was not that much of an explosion of violence because everything that came before was so um, appealing yeah yeah I thought so I th- I could watch her order a pizza yeah oh also while we're young that was the other one oh of course. You know, it's it's interesting because I mean, especially with something like Buzzard, um, that's a raw movie. That's yeah. a very raw, independent uh, film. Yeah. And I think the director was quoted as saying, "I want to show the that there is pathos in Doritos." Yeah. And I think that's a like he almost like he does something that Kevin Smith could not do in his dreams with a convenience store, and mm-hmm. to like show that. There is a genuine sadness to a character walking into a convenience store or eating a plate of spaghetti or having having bugles. Yeah. 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 I think that, um, and I think just to circle back a little bit, the whole, I think that Listen to Philip could only be shot on 60 millimeter, but I also think that Buzzard could only be shot on whatever digital DSLR they shot it because it gives you, you, it's, it's a film comprised of these mostly static long takes there's a short focus. You don't have that much focus. Mm-hmm. So you're focusing on a specific thing, namely the, the central character, the buzzard, who's Jack 
just something. Yeah, I forgot his name. Yeah, I forgot his name. The, the the central character, you know, so that you have this very like. There's not traditional coverage. You're, you're usually focusing on a face or the two figures posed. Yeah. Watching something play out in this long take, and then the 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 digital, you know, you're just capturing this information. It gives the film sort of a a coldness and a drabness, which I think is in, incredibly appropriate. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that, and I also like was really taken with again like his his use of location was really interesting mm-hmm. um he shot in and outside of detroit and he's from grand rapids and yeah. i think that like uh there's been a few films including it follows and the myth of american sleepover that are really capturing just sort of the rural interesting parts of yeah. michigan the that i'm familiar that. with because i uh because we we also we've got there's a like um, a family-wide uh like vacation house up uh by lake michigan and it's the neighborhood around it always feels haunted to me. I remember yeah. that very specifically, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think that in and in the way with the like, you know, I think yeah. Buzzard is hinting at the hauntedness of what it's like to be desolate. Yeah, and you know, kind of yeah. it's set up in the opening shot when it has to do with money and like those those environments of like basements at friends' houses, those yeah. hellish, relentless, and like I know that world. Mm-hmm. I think I, you know, I, I think you do too. Um, yeah, I think I, th- I think that movie is going to go on. You know, like years from now, people will be talking about it more and more. Yeah. It's going to become one of those cult movies, I yeah. think. I think that both with Buzzard and with Listen Up Philip, the filmmakers are dealing with familiar materials that we're used to seeing mediocre movies made from, but their, their, their intelligences are so much sharper that they do something really unique and special with it. Yeah. Like, you list the elements of Buzzard, you list the elements of Listen Up Philip. We think we've seen these narratives before. In each version, they are sharper and more intelligent, and um, creating these more these very fascinating, dense works from those things. Like with all the horror movie imagery, like with that incredible best ending, I think I've seen in all year in Buzzard, mm-hmm. just with the sprint, with the claw. Oh yeah, you know. Um, all this, all this, this horror imagery, uh, these worlds that are being sculpted very subtly. Which is, a, which is a shot that's utilized in. Um, oh my god! Tons of stuff. There's yeah. a, there's a. It's uh, in Francis Ha. It's in Francis Ha, and in, in, in Francis Ha, they were taking it from the yes. the, the guy who did um, Holy Motors. Holy Motors, right. Laos Carax. Yes, yes, yes. Um, just, I, and I think that uh, I like uh, my favorite use of it though is in Buzzard, where it's perverted and twisted in such mm-hmm. a fascinating way. Yeah, you know. It is. With the, the with the claw and it's it's oh god it's so good, um, and yeah and I, I oh here just the the, the mise en scene in um, in buzzard it's like because the camera feels like it's just coldly documenting something and because he's not shooting all things but he'll like pick a specific corner of a scene mm-hmm. and then focus on this and just be like this is the information we get we're gonna record all the facticity of this corner and I think that's incredible yeah um, similar to. A movie. It's kind of a few years old now. It's called Compliance, yeah. where that's exactly how that film is shot. I've heard of it. Has haven't have not but, seen it. But it's like it has moments that made me roll my eyes because it's like okay, there's a scene where there's possibly sexual assault taking place, and they do a close up of a straw, a limp straw, and that that's the kind of stuff that really irks me. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah. yeah, Buzzard doesn't have any of that. And Buzzard does feel like this is the this is the information you need it doesn't feel like cheating like there's a they both both Alex Ross and Joel Petrakis have a knack for really desolate visual gags where it's like sure this is set up like a visual joke but also it's incredibly depressing Mm -hmm. like Alex Ross Perry has his wheelchair stuff and um 
And in and Buzzard, there's a thing that just opens where it's like just this close-up on Joel Petrakis, his character's face, where you have these uh, these bugles coming down the, you know, and it just keeps on going, and then you hear this voice off camera. It's the off camera voices, you know, um, and that's really absorbing and fun. It's set up like a sight cag, but also kind of depressing. Yeah, I know that. That's the thing about both of these filmmakers; they manage to make a scene funny and sad simultaneously, and that's that goes back to me all. <laughs> You know, you can go to Billy Wilder, mm-hmm. then you can go to uh, Broadcast News by James L. Brooks, yeah. which is a movie that is, you know, it sort of plays one or the other for the most part, but there are moments where it's like you're laughing one minute and then you want to cry the next because yeah, yeah. it's just so intense. Um, it's sort of, it plays like an emotional roller coaster in that regard, yeah. but like, I don't know how they find that sweet spot. Like, yeah. both, both of those movies really do it well. I think, yeah. I think Listen Up, Philip is more of uh, um, disciplined and refined, but yeah. Buzzard is. I want to see what he does next. Like, yeah. I think it's a good, like, introduction to this yeah. director's vision. And I think that, um, just going back to what... Hmm, yeah, uh, sorry, I just keep... Oh, look, look, give me one second. Um, Buzzard, Listen Up, Philip, uh, Define, Disciplined. Yep, lost it. That's okay. <sighs> so, um, yeah, I mean, there's... I'm trying to think of what else. Um, oh, yeah, The Overnight. The overnight. What'd you think? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's no reason to call it anything but a good movie. It's a, just a good. It's a good movie. I think that um, it's a. It. I, I'm, all of my thoughts after watching it sounded like backhanded compliments, but were actually meant earnestly. Okay. You know, like it's like this is like it does a really good job of not tipping into. It, it could it could either be really 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 um, silly or like like just really accessible or it could be like something like the Alex Ross Perry of this version version of this movie which no one would want to see you know, or which like five people would want to see but it does a really good job of being like indie and weird but not too indie and weird yeah and like pushing it but not pushing mm-hmm. it too much you know which I think. Um, and it's it's uh, it's goofy, you know. It's a fun parts of it are goofy. Movie. Like that's what that's what I realized halfway through watching it is that this is this is not a sort. This, the style of this movie is not realist, you know, so to speak. It's goofy. A guy has a bunch of asshole paintings because that's goofy. You know, there there's that the the milking porn because that's goofy. Yeah, you the, know? it's it it, ha- it has elements of a farce. Yeah. Um, there's this movie called Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice yeah. by Paul Mazursky where it, it's essentially like. Um, a pro swingers kind of a movie, yeah. And since I, I've seen that movie and kind of knowing where the story was potentially going to end up, it's I still felt invested. Yeah. I still felt I still felt for Adam Scott's character, not because I can necessarily relate, yeah. Um, but that's getting a little too personal, especially if you've seen the movie. Um, but it's just like I understand what it's like to be in the presence of feeling inferior to somebody yeah. else, and like. Wishing yeah. you could be that other person, and but, then realizing, wait a minute, no, they're just I, like I me. I never quite reacted to it quite that deeply because um, what's his face? The Jason Schwartzman character is so, so also so fucking silly, so goofy. Yeah, he is. He's, he's more of a caricature than an yeah. actual character. Yeah, that I, I could never quite, you know. So it was like I, I think it's a good movie, and like I said earlier, it's it, was, it felt good to go to see to a movie theater to see a movie that was not three hours long and not have an endless amount of characters in CGI and was like, yeah, these are people. A simple streamlined story. story. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was very, very gentle. 
And whereas Creep is his other movie that yeah. you should see because it's actually even like shorter. Yeah. But it also it subverts expectations in a way that I was not expecting. Yeah. Um, and it sort of has a very simple horror movie kind of set up where it's found footage. And it's about a guy who answers a Craigslist ad hoping it's just going to be work. And, you know, um, the Craigslist ad is just like, uh, come um, meet with me and mm-hmm. I want you to shoot uh, me doing like a autobiography. Yeah. Kind of a movie for a day or something because he's going to do... Uh, He's going to do a video for his daughter, mm-hmm. um, his unborn daughter. And it sort of becomes really crazy and dark and strange. Oh, and awesome. it's Mark Duplass in a way that you've never seen him before. Yeah. So that is a, like both of those movies, they sort of set up in ways that remind me of Alex Ross Perry and that like, you think it's going to be one thing. Like, yeah. I, like listen up, Philip. It, it could have been Wonder Boys. It could have yeah, been yeah, like, yeah. you know, um, a, a, an established author sort of meets his protege. Or like, like a sub-Wes Anderson sort of farce, which is what yeah. the trailer set up, and then you get in and watch it, and it's like this caustic hate fuck. Caustic, yeah, exactly. And I think Patrick That's Bryce... the title of my autobiography, <laughs> Caustic Hate Fuck. Oh, my God. Story of Ben Medina. Or a Trent Reznor record. Or Trent Re- yeah, that's... Dude, I have such an appreciation for Trent Reznor. I, he's like... I'm a huge fan of Nine Inch Nails. Dream interview. That. He's my dream interview yeah, yeah, yeah. at this point. Um, but yeah, I think... I think Patrick Bryce is someone to watch. Yeah. Like, again, almost like with Buzzard, I think seeing this guy's first two movies is an indication of where he could go with this yeah. with this style, with this vision, well, with, well, with the stories he wants to tell that I like. I don't, yeah. like, fall head over heels with it like I did with Upstream Color or something, but I like the aesthetic. I like the approach. How would you characterize the aesthetic? Um, lo-fi. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, um, like, is, is lo-fi just, like, um, straightforward setups and, like, filming people and not explosions? Like, what do you yeah, say lo-fi Yeah, I mean, lo-fi? like, I guess, I mean, well, it's, well, Creep, again, is the found footage, yeah. handheld approach. Well, actually, like, on the subject of approach and style, um, that actually brings me to, like, I, why, for some reason, and I was thinking about this earlier, why do I respond more deeply to Buzzard um, and listen to Philip? Than I do to While We're Young and um, The Overnight. And um, if you allow me to go verge off um, into into a literary metaphor, um, I I really am a huge fan of ostentatious, like densely stacked prose. I like I you read novels for the prose, mm-hmm. and similarly. I watch movies for the filmmaking. It's probably why I like Hal Hartley, too. Yeah, exactly. That's also why I like Hal Hartley. And um, there's a novelist who's undeniably, you know, incredibly talented, you know, Kazuo Kazuo Ishiguro. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, um, and uh, the book, you know, Never Let Me Go was made into a movie where um, Andrew Garfield and Karen uh, Karen Mulligan are trying to outpout each other and they both lose. Um, so that's, but he's very, very a terrific novelist. He is very clean cut prose that works in the service of the story and the characters. I appreciate him, but you know, I, I that, that's, but that's not what I go to. I go to big, you know, I, I, I go to prose. I really like prose as a style. And um, if like while we're young or the overnight were stories were written down, they'd be like. New Yorker articles. They'd be like, <laughs> but they, they'd have very like clean, precisely cut prose. In the same way, the filmmaking is very clean and precisely cut. 
yeah. in the service of the story. What I like about Buzzard and List of Philip, and similarly Hannibal even, is that the, st- the filmmaking and the characters and the story are this unit that cannot be separated from each other. Does it call attention to itself, too, in a way? Like- yeah, that calls attention to itself where it's like you're not watching us. We're not telling you a story. This is the whole thing. It's the story, and it's the atmosphere, and it's all of these things lined up to each, lined, lined up next to each okay. other. Okay, okay. You know? I, can, I can see that. I can see the appeal of that. Yeah. And every now and then, you know, I can appreciate something completely raw and, you know, like unhinged. Um, but at the same time, like there, there's something nice and simple about a movie like The Overnight or like an Andrew Bajowski movie. Yeah. Uh, Computer like, Chess is amazing. Yes. I love that so much. Yeah, me and Patrick kind of flipped over that one too and yeah. just kind of went, more movies need to be made like this, but it's too weird and singular. Yeah. It's like there's not going to be anything like it again. And his latest movie, Results, is almost like Trainwreck. And that's like it's a it's a conventional rom com yeah. that has his stamp on it with like the Kevin Corrigan character. Yeah. And Trainwreck is a conventional rom com with Amy Schumer's stamp on it. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really it's it's he's an interesting filmmaker. I know a lot of his earlier stuff was praised in the Mumblecore movement with uh I think it's funny haha and mutual appreciation that I especially like. Um, and then, you know, Mark Duplass he put out some great work with the Puffy Chair and Cyrus yeah. Um, and Lynn Shelton. I don't know enough about the Mumblecore movement because I've sort of gone out of my way in the past to avoid it. But um, have you seen Joe Swanberg stuff? No, like that's the thing that like as I'm, I'm I'm getting a new appreciation for pictures of people talking. Yeah, you know, um, starting with Alex Ross Perry and then bouncing back to like Cassavetes. And so I'm positive that I'll work my way up to uh, the Swanbergs. Yeah, Swanberg is hit and miss. Very hit and miss. I get I that sense. I mean, I think I because he's made so many fucking movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, and and it's like, uh, you know, and it's like as someone who's like, and it's like the things that he's doing. Part of it is that I've always felt uncomfortable with the un, with, with what feels like unflinching autobiography, and or like like I could never. Like, there are, there are a lot of filmmakers who are like, yeah, come into my house, and it'll be, like, basically me, a movie about me. A therapy session? A therapy session. And I, I could never, I never want to do that. That just seemed really, like, that, like, shriveled my ectoplasm. Like I couldn't, Oh, wow. Like, not just, not just because I think it, because I, I am, I think I'm self-absorbed, but I don't think I'm, but I don't think that a movie directly about anyone's self-absorption would be exciting. That's why I've had, like, a problem with Lena Dunham in the past. And what like the closest I came to that would be like Shore Leave, which I sent you, which was shot partially here, but again there's no dialogue in it and there are so many layers of stylization. And that's one of the things I like so much about like Listen Up Philip and Alex Ross Perry is that it is he's pulling from his own life, but there is a degree of distance. I don't know. I just feel like the stuff that is like I'm shooting in my house and I'm playing myself, that feels uncomfortable to me almost. So what do you think about Woody Allen? Because Woody Allen is yeah, pretty that's much his that whole, directly. That's his whole thing. Yeah. Um it's like he really is like here I, I am. This I don't is me. know because but Woody Allen is like still he's still making movies you know oh, yeah. I mean? with like sight purple, gags purple rose of Cairo purple is not rose him. of Cairo and and, yeah. he, and even in Annie Hall or something like Annie Hall and Manhattan there's so much play going on sure, and there's sure. so much innovation going on that just the idea of like we're gonna shoot it on DV gonna be filming me that just the idea of Mumblecore mm-hmm. seems scary to me yeah. And a lot of it's very improvised, which yeah. can be hit and miss in of itself. Yeah. So that's something that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. It depends on the actor. I think 
someone like Greta Gerwig can cut, carry it. I think she does a yeah. great job. And for some reason, like Greenberg is an interesting movie for me because it like it, it's the nice middle ground between the uh, sort of refined uh, independent film and the mumblecore yeah. raw and rawness, and it has a character that you can loathe. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's Noah Baumbach. What are your thoughts? <laughs> um, I haven't. I'll be honest. Um, While We're Young is the first Noah Baumbach movie that I've seen. Whoa! Yeah, you got some. You got some catching up to do. Yeah, absolutely, Noah Baumbach. But um, yeah, I think you'd like Kicking and Screaming. Speaking of literary yeah. dense dialogue and yeah. stuff. And I, I think that. Um, and I should clarify that it's not that I'll only watch that. I only think that I think that all good movies have like dense dialogue and are imposed by yeah. authors. It's, it's more like there's a specific. The idea of density and the idea of not everything has to be in service of the plot and the idea of that there are more things going on than the plot, similarly as in like a novel, there are more things going on than the plot, is really exciting to me and I like seeing it a lot. But with While We're Young, um, I definitely – I think – huh. I didn't adore the movie, probably for the same – but I think that uh, I liked it. Well, here, I must – kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Like – I think that the Ben Stiller character... I think that Ben... I'll say this. Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts are incredible. I think they're they really, always really are. great. Yeah, as, yeah. as they always are. I think, I think, I, I, I think Ben Stiller yeah. works really well with Bombach. Yeah, I think that Ben Stiller... Because, 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 it's, it's, because Ben Stiller has always been playing... He plays small, angry, smart men. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And he's really, really, really good at it. And he seems to have the like even in um, the the night at the museum he's playing a small angry smart man he never <laughs> isn't like doing that mm-hmm. and so I think that in while we're young he has so much room to just be that character to the utmost and I think that's awesome and I think that uh, Naomi Watts I really really like her uh, I think I always she, have yeah she's really really great she was awesome in uh, she was awesome in this the the hip hop montage was. Awesome! I loved it. That was so fun. Silly. <laughs> it was silly, but fun. And I, um, yeah, I think that Naomi Watts is great. I think that it's very much a movie from the perspective of Ben Stiller's character, and that the second couple, Adam Driver, is not a character. He's a selection of ideas about millennials and a bunch of fears and concerns. He's not really. He's whatever the scene needs him to be. That's how, oh shoot. That's it's okay. That's how I felt about the Adam Driver character. What do you think? Yeah, I kind of agree with you on that, and I also think that the I, th- I think the female characters get the short shrift. Like I think they're yeah. more in the background. Yeah. And I not that, that like oh we have to give everybody equal ground here, but I I just I, I end up just watching Naomi Watts. That's what I did. Yeah, and I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> but I also kind of go, you know, there there is a there there is a montage in this that is so good. Yeah. It's just like really quick, and it's just like the differences between the two of them. Yeah, that I kind of want. I want that energy. Yeah, but I also go. Is that really what it's like right now? Like, I mean, I understand. Like, I am like, I do. I, I do look at my phone a lot. Yeah, and I do embrace technology. Yeah, but I also I I love having books and records and you know other yeah. things too of well, the past. Like, I, is it really like? The younger generations are all of a sudden embracing things from the eighties. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think the movie is at its exaggerated. Best. I think the movie is at, is at its best when it's like focusing on these people as people and not trying to make a statement about how we live now. Mm-hmm, because, mm-hmm. Like that's why I thought the ending was just like dumb. I thought it was too. <laughs> I thought the ending was really dumb. The little baby with, with the, the baby, phone. It was like, come on, you know. I mean, people people are still. I mean, and I think that the movie it, there was. It really felt like there was a push and pull with with regards to how self aware it was. Like yeah. when there's the big confrontation where it's like the the older documentarian 
Like, it's like, yeah, you know, sometimes you bend the truth with the Adam Driver guy, mm-hmm. you know, where it was like, it's not like, oh, these millennials are lying to us. It was just like, yeah, no, that's how documentaries are made. And then there's a sense that, like, Ben Stiller is just like, you know, that, like, ability to sort of let go of principle that is necessary for true success, he just doesn't have. You think there was a natural flow between, like, just the relationship components between the two couples, and then suddenly we're sort of delving into documentary ethics? No, I didn't think that was the case. I, yeah, no, I, I, I didn't feel that, at, like, at all. I thought that was that was weird. Yeah, I just, I wasn't sure how I felt about it. Like, maybe maybe if I see it again, I'll feel differently. Yeah. Like, maybe they sort of complement each other, those two sort of theses of the movie. Yeah. But I mean, I, it's like, I think that inviting, inv- the documentary ethics thing invites the thought that the movie is about differences between generations, which, again, to me, mm-hmm. is the least interesting thing, because that's not universal at all. Universal at all. I mean, I, and, and, and like Listen Up Philip, for example, is I think more powerful because it's uniquely about one's, one person's experience. Not one person's experience, but like everyone in the movie. No one in the movie is a symbol of anything. Everyone in the movie is themselves. Ah, okay. You know, and that's what was exciting to me about Listen Up Philip, that, um, that it's a friendship beca- between, because I have, cause, because it's not like, because th- you, you're not only friends with people who are your age ever. There are Ben type people who I'm friends with. I have friends who are very young. I have friends who are very old. Um, the very young ones, no, that's creepy. But it's like you know, <laughs> there is there's vast age range, um, and it's just there are people who are like you, and there I think are people that, who are just people, yeah, and not just like uh, representations yeah. of. And, and so that's why it's like the Adam Driver character was seemed it was like at different times everything that every New Yorker editorial has ever been afraid of. But maybe we shouldn't view it as like a generational statement and more just a comedy. Every time it didn't feel like that and more just like a comedy, I was delighted. But the movie does so much, not so much, but a sizable amount to make us feel like it is a a generational statement that it's not me bringing that to the movie. The movie brings that to the table, especially with that like ridiculous final shot reverse shot. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the ending. (laughs) Yeah. But and, but it was there was a degree. I, what I did like is sort of the world building the movie did in that it was very slyly um, self aware. In that it was like this is we are dealing with um, gentrified white uh, upper middle class New Yorkers, and they they very you know like like the ayahuasca thing. And, that's what that's Noah Baumbach's uh, yeah, mo. Yeah, and, so. and and like going to the baby dancing class, and like the fact that every black person in the movie is a prop. Like that was something the movie was aware of. Yeah. Like the fact that it's like, oh, she's so hip because she goes to a hip hop class with black people. Like it's like, and then it's like, whoa, that's right. an exciting thing. Or else it's like, see, I'm filming a black boy in a bathtub. I'm legit. You know, the documentary. <laughs> the, or even yeah, when they're yeah, adopting yeah. a baby, it's mm-hmm. like a picture of a black baby. Because of course, that's what you know. Like that's like the fact that it, like it, that sort of way of relating of. of thinking about privilege and of relating to yourself um i think that the movie did a great job of sort of not foregrounding that skewering but letting it be an element and being self-aware about it and because of that i didn't mind the generational stuff too much because i felt like it was still very specific to this context i would agree with most of that yeah i i I just like i i also like the fact that he's tackling the pressures of people that age have, you know, needing to feel complete yeah. by having a baby. And, you know, that's something that you approach a certain age, you'll know this in 20 years. Yeah. Um, if, like, that hasn't happened, you almost feel like society is saying, you better do that. Yeah. Or you're incomplete, or you're not really fully alive. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that 
I know has happened not just to myself but to other people and I like that the movie tackles that but then like you know halfway through it does become more about Adam Driver's documentary and like what's to become of that about Adam Driver's documentary you know I I, and I I I thought I every time I just want to knock like the stupid floppy hat off his head like it was like sure he's delightful but it's also you know are you making what's the Mr. Ripley movie the Mr. Talented Mr. Ripley? Yeah, are you like if you're making hipster talented Mr. Ripley, then do that, but that's <laughs> not as like exciting as this other thing. Like, it did feel like it kind of came unfocused at the end, and I agree that the Amanda Seyfried and Naomi Watts are criminally underused. Yeah. Every scene with them I enjoyed a lot. Um, I will say that the scene where they're at that retreat or monastery, or not monastery, the retreat thing, or where they're doing some kind of drug, or what Ayahuasca? They? Yeah, didn't like it. Didn't it, like it. It went on too long. Yeah, I uh, let me think. I um, puking and the puking. Yeah, I think. I I mean, I like again just the the skewering that he's like playing the RoboCop soundtrack and just the cutaway. Like sometimes Adam, I think. Oh, here's what it is. Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts are playing characters in a feature film because they don't they because they're not set up like a punchline, like a joke. They're human beings, mm-hmm. well played, well essayed, well laid out. Adam Driver is playing a Portlandia character. In that he Ooh, feels like designed that. for a sketch, and you, and and it's like he's well, it's interesting at, casting because he's yeah. coming from girls. Yeah, and so he's at his funniest in that ayahuasca scene, which plays like a Portlandia sketch. In those cutaways to him, where he's just leaning against this thing, saying like, "I voted for Romney," like these obnoxious like things. Like that's right. when he's at his most potent as a character. You know, that's a good point. Yeah, I think I'm always going to be in the middle on on, on on while we're young. Like, I, I there's certain things I really like about it. But also coming from Noah Baumbach, who's really cynical and yeah. really like you know biting in a very Alex Ross Perry kind of fashion. That's why I think you'll like some of his movies a lot, and yeah. I think you'll I think you'll appreciate Kicking and Screaming. I mean, that's that seems to be cut from the Hal Hartley, Whit Stillman, Alex yeah. Ross Perry cloth. So I think you'll really like yeah. his first movie. And just to clarify, I mean, I think one another thing that was really uh, life changing for me and uh, exciting was I went to see just a ton of Godard. Uh, at the Gene Siskel retrospective. But, and that was the first time that I realized, like, up until that point, I thought that formatting arguments were stupid. Like, it's like, because it's like Dark Knight, Dark Knight on an IMAX or Dark Knight on an iPhone, it's only a question of volume and size. You know, I didn't, I didn't get the point. I wasn't excited by it. It was only when you go and see something like Weekend, you know, on a screen projected on celluloid that you realize I could not watch, I would not watch this on my laptop. I couldn't. I couldn't sit through it because this is like some sort of art form that's half alive and been half forgotten that's designed for this <laughs> place to be watched in this place. Um, and that's the first time that I really like appreciated uh, projection and seeing things in a theater, I think, fully because that's the only place you could go to see that movie and like take it in. And I think that was really uh, invigorating and exciting for me. And I also like Godard very much because he – opens up possibilities. He says that these are the things that you can do with cinema. And yeah, he's that, breaking conventions yeah, left and right. absolutely. And similarly, that's why I respond to so much to someone like Hal Hartley, where he's taking the stuff of real life and rearranging it in this very fascinating, vivid, weird dance that no one else has. And it's very intentional and thought out. Um, and I just really, really dig on it. How do you respond to just the way the characters speak to one another? Because it's a very David Mamet sort of like stylized, almost 
robotic kind of not necessarily robotic that's not the right word but just there's a a, a cadence a rhythm to the way they talk that is like the antithesis of how real people talk yeah it feels sort of agonized and off-putting in a way that Wes Anderson has never been but in a way that is to me uh really uh enjoyable and interesting because I think that as someone who's constantly thinking about, about who's working on movies or thinking about, about movies, to see all of the different ways that you can take the ingredients of a scene between two people and rearrange them just with camera and staging and how people say dialogue, that's really exciting and interesting. You know? And I think I and, and I think it's um yeah, no, I really enjoy Hal Hartley for that reason. I, it's all of these people I could not I feel like I've had it sort of up to here because recently <laughs> I've just been watching like people talking at each other, you know, and it's like I've gotta I've gotta watch some slasher movies or watch something else. Yeah, no, know? that happens and that's why it's it's difficult. Like I think of man, if I had to do um Antonioni or Bertolucci or somebody yeah. like I had to binge on Immediately after, I would watch something dumb. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I would, I would watch some Zucker Brothers or some, you know, slasher movies or something because, like, your brain can only handle so much of one style. Yeah. Because it can be you. You become a sponge. You yeah. Beca- you absorb somebody's vision for so long that, and that's kind of like it's not in the same context, but that's also why like actors really have a hard time sometimes shaking their characters because yeah. they're just constantly living in that state yeah. in that frame of mind that i bet it's, yeah. it's it's difficult to shake so just gets exhausting yeah yeah so that's kind of why i'm like at least for the time being i want to make this adjustment of you know patrick possibly leaving for good mm-hmm. to where it's a little bit more accessible and kind of like digestible um in terms of the directors that we so choose. you think fastbinder was like very inaccessible and indigestible no i wouldn't say necessarily every movie we saw like um ali fear eats the soul was mm-hmm. not yeah it was very very digestible and yeah quite moving um, but there were a couple others where it was just like oh this is so intense and i can't yeah. handle it it's just like like year of 13 moons yeah i think that was one of them yeah. Let's. I think there's one with a transgender character getting beat up right at the very I th- beginning. I think that was your third. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that. Uh, so what? What? What director is next on the docket? Um. It is. Steven Spielberg. Or no, sorry. <laughs> Steven Soderbergh. Soderbergh. Part two. Awesome. Um, with two of my buddies, Andrew James and Kurt Halfyard, they're returning. Um, it's been a while since I've talked to either of them. They've just recently had their 400th episode of the Cinecast, and I love both of those guys, and I love talking to them. And um, Kurt especially is a huge fan of latter-day um, Soderbergh, yeah. like the informant, contagion, a, a, lot, of, a lot of more recent hey, Soderbergh's. Haywire. Haywire. The Limey. The Nick, which I'm super excited about but haven't seen. Oh, it's so good. So good. It's so good. Yeah, it looks really good. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's something. So, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot to talk about that we didn't cover for Soderbergh Part 1 um, that I'm, I'm excited for. But this was great, yeah. man. I really awesome. enjoyed talking with you, and we're going to do this again next year, I'm sure, Absolutely. with another director. Yeah. On the, the, la- the thing with, uh, with Patrick, you, you were both like, I want to talk to the 18-year-old because he's fascinating. Which yes, is you are. Weird specific word choice. So <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I agree, and you you've lived up to that expectation. All right, well, thank you, thank you so much. This was um, awesome. You know, really quickly, since we can't do a top three, 
Alex Ross Perry yeah, movies yeah. because it'd be impossible, like I always try to do with every director. I found a list of Alex Ross Perry's life-changing movies that yeah. I would like to read to you. Sure thing. Because it's really interesting, and a lot. I, I, don't, I haven't seen any of these. Yeah, yeah. So number eight is called Dark of the Sun by Jack Cardiff from 1968. Number seven is Cracking Up by Jerry Lewis from mm-hmm. 1983. Number six is Busting by Peter Hines from right. 1974. So far, I've seen none of these. Number five is The Letter Never Sent by Mikhail Kalatazov from 1959. Okay. Number four, we've both heard of. Berlin Alexanderplatz. Yeah. Fassbinder, 1980. Number three is a double feature of White Dog and La Luna. Um, this is, uh, White Dog's a fuller, White Dog's a fuller yeah. movie. Yeah. And La Luna's Bertolucci, 1979. Um, number two is Out One, Jacques Rivette. Oh my god, yeah, I adore Rivette. Okay, we'll have to see that. Uh, and number one is a very interesting movie that I have yet to see, that I've heard a lot about, that's hard to find. The Last Movie by Dennis Hopper. Yeah. Well, I've seen like three of those, so do you want me to, like, and I, so I don't, I don't... Sure, go ahead, really quickly. Really quickly, um, of the three that I've seen, which I like the most... Um, yeah. I like uh, Out One the most because it's unlike anything that's ever existed ever and it's really hard to see. And then um, uh, White Dog uh, because I really yeah. love Samuel Fuller. I need to see that. And he's a white knuckle filmmaker. And then lastly would be the um, the last movie, the Dennis Hopper one because it's like, you know. You've seen that? Uh, yeah, I think <gasps> I've seen part of it. I found it online um, because it's like a, a weird meltdown end of the 70s sort of thing. Oh, good. I'm all about that. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, yeah, everybody, thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Ben, again, for being on the show. You'll have to do this again. Absolutely. Um, Where can people see some of your work or follow you? Or I mean, I know you're not super social media guy, but... I mean, I have a a Vimeo page called... um, That's Ben Medina, which is pretty straightforward. Oh, yeah, it is. And there's a a lot of stuff available there. Um, That's mainly the primary place, I guess. Okay, great. Well, we'll follow you there and uh, look forward to talking with you next year. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. Send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks for Steven Soderbergh Part 2 featuring my pals Andrew and Kurt. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Bye-bye. By the way, no, ben, just kidding. No, just that's kidding. that's that is the narrative of this episode. I am pro incest. I think that it's a it's an interesting narrative tool. God.